<laughs> Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. And we're just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now, it's not an Amityville. Or where is it? It's Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome, horror fans. It's Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and that means it's time for another episode of the Weekend Horror Podcast. The only podcast that's drawing a line in the, in the fucking sand. Here, do not read the Latin. <laughs> Go. <laughs> <laughs> and if you dear horror fanatic are listening to us at the top of the week remember we do this live every wednesday right here on youtube hang out and see all the stuff our editor do doesn't want you to see yes all the secret stuff <laughs> and this week recovery select horror films released april 23rd through april 29th thank you all so much for joining us i'm eugene and with me tonight is jl Yes. Good evening, everyone. Good to see everybody. <laughs> oh, gotta love it. Oh, my dog is barking in the background. Oh, apparently. the dogs so, want to be a part of it too. They're like, we're apparently, here. apparently, he does. He does. He's excited. Well, the weather's a little wild up here, uh, up here in Oklahoma. So, and you know, things are blustery and probably knocking around out there. He just got his attention. But good to see everyone. So great to see everybody here in the live chat. As a matter of fact, um, before we dive into stuff tonight. Let's get up that podcast banner. Oh, get up that Patreon banner. Those are all the amazing individuals who are part of our Patreon who help to make this show possible. Every single person down there, we love you all so much. Thank you so much for doing that. We appreciate it. We couldn't do this show without any of you. We have so many cool things coming up behind the scenes that here we are, but just past the midway point in season four. And we have film productions that are coming up and we cannot wait to show like behind the scenes, uh, video, video interviews, and of course, you know, production photos, all kinds of stuff. So if you are a member of the Weekend Horror Patreon, then you will get access to all that cool stuff that gets released via, you know, patreon.com slash Weekend Horror. You get all see all the cool stuff that you guys helped us to make here at the podcast. It started out as a little show, and now it's, you know, full on, it's full on production entity, which is pretty badass. Yes, so. thank you so much. We could not do it without your support. And we will bring you big things and bigger things, and it's going to be awesome. Yes, because any because it, not just to mention that not just behind the scenes stuff, but when this stuff like comes out, you know, you guys will get to see it. You know, probably before anybody else. You know, because you, you have that kind of access, you help to make it happen. So it's you know, 
only fair that you see the fruits of your labor to see all the the great gory slashery stuff that we get to put on that we get to put on camera it's gonna be a lot of fun it's gonna be so cool all right but before we dive in let's see who we've got in the live chat tonight i see raven darkstar there good to see you raven travis brown as well good to see you case cooper's here says well met i do look forward to deep philosophical thoughts and the other gems every wednesday not to mention the turd polishing Thank you so much, Casey. There is some turd that. polishing tonight. There's going to be a little bit of turd polishing tonight. There will be. Uh, Doctor Who Design is here. Good to see you, Doctor Who. Uh, Sarcasm is here. Good to see you, Sarcasm. Sally Skeleton as well says, hello, folks. Good to see you, Sally. Thanks so much for hanging out tonight. Denova28 is here. Good to see you, Denova. Says, hola, mi nerd amigos. Good to see you, bud. Appreciate you being here. Uh, let me see. Sarcasm says, after watching less than half of My Demon Lover, I began to question why I do this to myself. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are almost eight well i think we're like you know over 700 movies in we stopped asking that question a long time ago you just you know? accept it at a point <laughs> just accept it it's just the way it's, it's what it's become uh what are you gonna do brian powell good to see you this evening angel rivera as well what up what ups ghouls and girls good to see you angel thanks so much for being here and i see as well jeremy duncan says dang it couldn't finish watching my louder with crowder lol that's okay we're a better show Far more entertaining. Yes. But good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for being here. Sarcasm is creeping ever closer to those magical 1,000 subs. We are so close. We're literally like 120-something away, last I checked, from 1,000 subs on YouTube. So it would be pretty cool if we can hit that very soon. I think that would be that, that would be a, it's a good milestone that we want that we want to cross. Vera Lucia Campos is here. Good to see you. This is good evening. Thank you so much for being here. Bobby williams Wells says, hey, y'all. Good to see you, Bobby. Thanks for, so much for hanging out. Cindy Johnson is here. Good evening, Cindy. Thanks so much for being here as well. Oh, Casey Cooper says we are 125 away. Fan friggin' almost. Absolutely. Uh, Raven Darkster says June 3rd, my town is doing its first pride uh, pride feast or pride fest because there's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> there is a difference, sir. Fest. Okay. Fest. Okay. Yeah, fest. fest. Okay. For, yeah. Excellent. That's excellent news. Fantastic. Congratulations. Uh, that is pretty cool. Jeremy Duggan says, worst horror movie, worst horror movie ever was Showgirls. Uh, yes, absolutely terrifying. Good to see you, Jeremy. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, we got a few new names here. Thanks so much for hanging out and all the uh, the awesome regulars that pop in. Um, so first off, and this is going to be the kind of the beginning of a small discussion, and I want to get the people in the live chats, uh, you know, kind of like opinions on this as well, as well as yours. So... There's a new movie coming out in August. A new horror movie coming out in August. It comes out August 11th called The Last Voyage of the Demeter. Okay, are see, you, I remember uh, we talked about it. And I actually, I thought about watching it ahead of time just to see because a lot of times uh, that's what I do. But for this one and probably for a lot of these others when we start showing new trailers, I actually don't want to watch it because I want my gut reaction that y'all can capture and see and we can discuss and talk about. It. So I haven't seen the trailer yet. You haven't watched the trailer. I have not watched the trailer. So this is going to be my reaction live. Okay. So here we go. So before we dive into this little kind of discussion that I want to have regarding some upcoming stuff in the horror genre is that we have The Last Voyage of the Demeter. So if you haven't seen this trailer yet, here it is. Okay. All right. So what do you think? Gut reaction. So the things that caught my eye initially was production value. You don't get a lot of horror movies on like clipper ships or schooners. Uh, that that style of ship. It's a period piece film. Looks like set into like maybe early eight, early mid eighteen hundreds. Right. And like I was like, 
that's awesome. And then the thought of a creature being released reminds me a lot of like Alien, where you have nowhere to go. You're just stuck right. on those ships aren't that big. And there's only so many hiding places. And if you hide for too long, you still have to run the ship. So I was like, okay, this is intriguing. It had me until it said Dracula. And I was like, <laughs> oh, really? Okay, so so are you not familiar with the, the story, The Last Voyage of the Demeter? What, what, what the, uh, the story that's behind this? No, no, I'm not familiar with the story. Okay, so in Bram Stoker's Dracula, there was one chapter that was dedicated to the ship's, to the captain's log of when uh, the Demeter went from, from Transylvania to, or uh, where Dracula's home country, to England is where Dracula was moving over. So it's it pre it, it's uh, set before the events that take place in like Bram Stoker's Dracula when he you know, encounters Mina and Jonathan Harker and and uh, Van Helsing and all that. So this is before any of that. And so it's the story of what happened on the ship. Now in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Demeter came into port as a ghost ship. So it arrived in port and the and no no bodies were found. No one knows what happened. And they found the captain's log and the captain's log makes up one chapter of the book. And so this movie is based upon those events as to what took place on the ship, uh, you know, in between when Dracula was making his journey across the sea to come to England for the first time. And and the, the name gives it away because it was the Demeter. The Demeter is the famous ship of Bram Stoker's story. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, but you're right. The, the elements are there. It's very alien. There's like that you're, you're, it's claustrophobic in the sense that you have nowhere to go. You can't escape the evil that is there. You must face it head on if you want to survive but of course it is of course dracula and it's the it's not the the kind of romanticized version of it it's the more monstrous version that coppola used in some sequences of of uh the, that film so it kind of harkens to that instead of the the gary oldman uh, well, you know, see, you know. like, honestly i would keep the intrigue like it's fine that it's dracula but i wouldn't even announce it in the trailer if you just leave it as here's just a creature because new creatures are fascinating. I've seen a bunch of Dracula stuff and I like Dracula vampires in there. That's cool and everything, but it's like the idea of just this creature. That's what made alien. So good was because you didn't know what it was. You just, right, you okay. did. We've never seen anything like that before. So if they just left it a mystery of there's just this creature that's loose on the ship that would intrigue me a little bit more i mean i'm still interested uh the august release date worries me because august is usually one of the dump months so that does kind of eh, yeah it's, uh, it's it's set to come out after the major 10 polls so it's it's you know it's, it's being primed for that moment where it's not going to have any kind of uh any kind of major competition um but i will say you know with with such production but with dreamworks behind this and the production values that obviously went into this movie um, the boat looks fantastic. The set, the oh, set yeah. pieces are absolutely amazing. And then you have, uh, not to mention a, 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 a David Desmalkian is in this as well. He's a fantastic actor. Liam Cunningham is a legendary actor. So so much talent has gone into this, both in front of and behind the camera. Not to mention Javier Botet, who people remember is the uh, the Spanish actor with Marfan syndrome, who played who's like the Doug Jones from Spain. And he mm -hmm. plays various monsters. He played, you know, the uh, mama and uh, the the creature mama and uh, Del Toro's mama. Yeah. And he was in Wreck as well. He was the zombie, the, the big monster thing at the end of Wreck. So he's got a history of playing these kind of characters. That physicality is going to lend itself so well to this monster movie. So I'm strongly looking for. I'm big time, even though we know how it ends, 
And there have been movies like that where we knew how oh, it and, and That's perfectly fine. I'm fine with movies that's like, hey, I mean, you go in the Blair Witch Project, you already know everybody dies. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You go in, it's like, well, we only found the footage. We never found their body. So obviously no one's making it out of this, but what, but what happened mm -hmm. there? And because the story in the book, in Stoker's book, was only one chapter. So there's not that much detail. So all of this is additional stuff that's being that's being it's, it's artistic license, which is going to make it a lot a lot of fun and a lot and really really interesting. Not to mention the visual appeal of that, you know, because Dracula can't leave the ship either, because he can't can't move into because Dracula can't step foot over running water. So he's literally trapped on the boat with them, and if they kill him or they get him off they get him uh you know off the ship, he'll he'll die. So his uh or his survival imperative is as strong as theirs. So they're trapped together, and it's a risk that they both take. And I love that it's going to have that dynamic, and uh, hopefully that will come out in the in the acting as well. Um, let me see here. So we had some some major uh, commentary on this. Let me see. Dang, going up yeah, 125 ways. See, so uh, thank you, Vera Lucia Campus. Says don't forget to like and subscribe and share. We do appreciate it. Jeremy Duncan says, "Ooh, I'm looking forward to real vampire horror, not this Twilight BS pushed lately." Which we're going to get into a little bit. Denova 28 says, I'm interested in it. Uh, Travis Brown says, spoiler, everyone dies in the Demeter. We'll see how the <laughs> you are correct. Um, Denova 28 says, ships and vampires, freaking awesome. Dude, that movie Blood Vessel took me way by surprise. I did not realize how good that movie was going to be. It was about a, a, a it, was, it basically takes place during World War II, and a Nazi ship has just gotten done plundering like the old castles and shit from other, and they were taking the loot with them across the sea. And it turns out that the, one of the castles they plundered was a vampire's castle. They took its casket on board. And so oh. not just a vampire. Yeah. So, and so it winds up bringing two vampires on board because there's two caskets. And so they wind up bringing on board and how the, and, and some, some adrift allies wind up on the ship because once the dragon, once the, the vampires killed everyone, it's just a ghost ship. Now, the friggin' allies, like some some uh, some shipwrecked allies, make their way onto the ship, and now the, the horror begins again. So it's you know that was a good fucking movie with a good monster too. Blood Vessel, Leo. That one's highly recommended if you haven't seen it. It's on Shutter. Um, let me see. Jeremy Duncan says, "Hello, Travis. That was not a spoiler. We all know this." <laughs> Brian, <laughs> Brian Bell says, "Maybe I can get some new subscribers while I'm here at my military school." Reunion. Thank you, Brian. We do appreciate that. Cool. Hello, Elizabeth Sylvester. Good to see you. Thanks so much. Smitty is too far gone. Good to see you, Smitty. Thanks so much for hanging out. Jeremy Duncan says, loving the looks of Dracula in this as well. Absolutely love the, the monstrous version of that. It's going to look so good. NA's here. Good to see you, NA. NA, thanks so much for being here. Sir Cabs says, the best boat horror will always be Triangle. Fight me. <sighs> boat horror, I mean, Triangle is very good, though. Triangle is so fucking it's good. It's very good. But all of Triangle, I mean, come on. It's not, the, the problem is Ghost Ship had like the best five minutes in it because that opening sequence to ghost ship to ghost ship was fucking amazing. Oh, it's amazing. But you also <laughs> that's the thing you have to remember with ghost ship, right? You have to remember the letdown. Yes. <laughs> the, the precipitous <laughs> letdown. It's like that drop off is like at least sometimes you get some bleed, right? It's like good and then it bleeds and kind of peters out. No, in Ghost Ship it was just it, it was like, oh man, the steel cable scene. Man, I bet this movie has so much more going on. No, nope. nope. <laughs> it doesn't. No. <laughs> and oh, and okay, I will be, I will be honest. I know because a couple of people called called me out. I have not read the original Dracula. I I will apologize. Oh. I have not read it. I haven't. I've so, so uh, the time will come. Well, I will read it. 
but I but I just have not yet. See, Eugene, Eugene's too busy making movies. He has no See. time for the printed word, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Raven Dark Star says, looks good. It I really, really does. Travis Brown says, uh, O2's ghost ship is the worst boat horror with the best five-minute intro. It really does. Um, uh, Denova 20 says, almost gives me blood vessel vibes. Fuck yes. Bobby mm -hmm. Williams says, oh my God, this looks awesome. Good to see you, Bobby. Thanks so much for being here. Jeremy Duncan says, that was a galleon. That was actually galleon a galleon ship. ship. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Casey Cooper says, looks like great production. It really does. Jay Raven Dark says, looks like a good old-fashioned vampire flick. Fuck yes. Jeremy Duncan says, I mean, I mean, come the name, the the, uh, the name should have given away the Demeter. And he says, going to be a little mean here, but G Eugene should lose his horror card. LOL. I'm not going to agree with that. I won't. No, I would no, say. Because, because we talk movies here. Yes. If this is a horror uh, book podcast, then yeah, I would resign immediately. I would actually say if you're, I would say, okay, you were you a Boy Scout? Yeah, so I'm an Eagle Scout. I'm an Eagle Scout as well. Okay, so do you remember when you got your chit? Your, yes. your knife handling chit? You remember oh, that? Yes. Okay, we're going to clip a corner of your chit, is what we're going to do. <sighs> so I got okay, three left before so I got lose three it. left. So if we clip all three, then you lose, then you lose. Then, your, then I'm your out. Chit. So yeah, so I got to take the course gonna, again. <laughs> for anybody who's been to Boy Scouts, that should that should bring back memories. So I I made it through. I only had two. I only had two that were clipped off my chin, and I never I never lost my card, either my my uh, my knife chin or my fire my uh, my fire chin, neither one. So, <laughs> so that that took a turn. Oh, let me see here. Who else we got? So Casey Cooper says so, so. Eugene can't read or doesn't read. Eugene doesn't read. Does I never read. learned to read. <laughs> Is that part true? <laughs> Or has seen any Dracula movie ever. <laughs> hey, Welsh News Network, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here as well. Uh, the Demeter gives away his Dracula. Absolutely, it does. But I think we're going to. It's going to be a good time. Mr. Malort is here. Good to see you, Mr. Malort. Says, but that is the Dracula story. Agreed. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking forward to it. And I really, I, I think it's going to be an excellent movie. And I'm looking forward just from the talent well, in see, front of the camera. But see, I also I want to bring up this very last point that okay. So people who've read the book would know, okay, this is obviously featured Dracula, Dracula and Born. Uh, but from a marketing perspective, I would still keep that in because the people who've read it and know it can go, oh, there's Dracula. But if you don't reveal it in the trailer, first of all, people wonder, I wonder how it's going to look like. And let people imagine and kind of think about it. Because as more people think about a trailer, the more traction that it gains. Because that's what marketing is designed to do, to make you think about it. So it's, like, it's the kind of thing, like, if you haven't read it, not revealing it goes, I wonder what's on the ship. And the thing is, if you have read it, it's like, oh, it's Dracula. And then people start speculating, what is Dracula going to look like? What is this? How are they are going to approach that? So even leaving it a mystery for marketing purposes is still the way to go. Well, in that, you wouldn't be able to release the name of the boat. Like, you wouldn't be able to show oh, the no, boat's no, that's, name. That's what I would say. You release the name of the boat so people who've read the book know. Oh, but okay. it still, but it still makes you talk about, like, how would they? How are, how are mm -hmm. they going to do Dracula? Because you can do Dracula so many different ways. Of course, Mr. Blow says, except for the millions of people that have read the book. So <laughs> I have, I've, I've, I've read it twice myself, and I have to agree with uh, Sarcasm. Fair warning, Dracula isn't exactly an easy read. It's not. It really, really isn't. Um, but nonetheless, oh uh, man, so never read Dracula, aka Undead. Um, it was Raven Dark Star. So it was a uh, Jeremy Duncan says the written word for a lot of horror gives the best in-depth imagination to any movie. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this is intriguing. The reason I wanted to bring it up and show this was because 
there's some speculation going on now. Everybody out there in the live chat, I know you're aware of it as well, that Universal was, was fighting hard to try and create its dark universe. And every time they've tried to kick this thing off, it just doesn't work. It's like what is, is you know, they, they dropped the mummy in it, you know, with Tom Cruise and yep. it fell through. The Invisible Man was intriguing, but the Invisible Man uh, may or may not be because it was a Blumhouse production. It's not, you know, uh, so we don't know where it's going to go with that. We uh, haven't gotten a, dra a drag the film. The, the Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro was great, but things kind of stalled after that. Although I really fucking love that movie with, Del Toro, with uh, Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, the book from and, like 2010. Yeah, and yeah. Anthony Hopkins. I thought it was Rick Baker fucking uh, effects. Fuck yes. So they were going to go with the Dark Universe. And it feels like they keep trying to reboot it. Then you have like Dracula Untold with Luke Evans, which I thought was an excellent film. That was really good. But is it universe building? wise we we don't know but now we have last voyage of the demeters coming out <clears throat> and there is word out there that guillermo del toro is developing a new wolfman or is developing a a frankenstein film so for universal mm -hmm. and a wolfman film is also in pre, is, is in pre-production as well and we just got word that the lead actress from scream six and i want to make sure i get her name correct not jenna ortega but uh, I think her name is Melissa Barrera. Melissa Barrera has signed on to an undisclosed project with Radio Silence. Radio Silence is the company that made Scream 6. Is signed on to an undisclosed project with Radio Silence for Universal, which quite possibly could be a Creature from the Black Lagoon film. This is, this is why they mess up, and I'm afraid they're going to mess up again. Okay. And you said it earlier. Oh, the film needs to be universe building. It does not need to be universe building. It does not. All you need is a solid film. When you look at Iron Man, Iron Man is not a universe building film. It is a it is a solid standalone film. Right. Period. It only used it only used the mid credit scenes to imply a bigger universe to, to imply yeah. but it's it but in terms of the actual film itself if that if that was just a one and done and there's no other marvel connection to it at all just whatever just a one of there'd still be a fantastic it'll go out down as one of the best superhero movies the same thing when you look at star wars the 1977 one mm. it's a great film by itself without any other context hints a little here and there but that's it Every time you get these people that are like, we're going to start a universe from the beginning. That's why the DCU has problems because right. they're already going into this. That's why they keep, it's like they keep trying with the dark universe and they keep having problems. What they need is they just need a solid film by itself. Don't imply, you don't have to imply or hint or anything else. Just a solid film. That's why you look at Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss. That is a good film. That was a fucking good movie that was and, it, and, and and i saw that i saw that travis brown had a problem with blumhouse blumhouse hits or misses more often it hits than it misses but there are some blumhouse misses absolutely but the invisible man was fucking brilliant that movie was great so i'm just throwing that out there yeah it was like that was like that movie that movie's fantastic it didn't have to hint at anything else you didn't have to have russell crow calling himself like dr jekyll and also this guy no you just <laughs> <laughs> something he like basically that. No. went from acting to just who he was when he did the transition to high <laughs> so it's pretty much just on russell crow acting 
Now I'm just Russell Crowe as I normally am. (laughs) (laughs) See, so so that's it. Just, you know what I want? I want a good Frankenstein film. That's it. Guillermo del Toro doing Frankenstein. Come on. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, I'm excited about that. Or I say, Guillermo del Toro doing the modern Prometheus. Fuck yes. Because I know he loves Mary Shelley, and he takes a lot of inspiration from Shelley's uh, from Shelley's writing. So I'm really looking forward to that. Not to mention, hopefully, one day Del Toro doing at you know at the Mountains of Madness. Fingers crossed that happens one day. But it's entirely possible that we could be getting another attempt at Universal trying to bring the classic monsters back. And Voyage of the Demeter may be the the, the attempt to bring uh, Dracula back up to establish Dracula and. But where they're going to go with it, I have no idea. What is, what is the event? MCU culminates with the Avengers. And then we have broken up storylines culminating in Avengers 2. What, I mean, what can Universal do is that you can establish the, 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 the dark universe and culminate in the fucking reboot of the Monster Squad? I don't know where it can go <laughs> is the problem. It's like, what? so how do you bring it all together? But I'm hopefully we get good movies. Del Toro doing Frankenstein, fantastic. A new Wolfman is my is one of my favorites. A new a Gilman movie, a fucking uh, um, Creature from the Black Lagoon. I would love to see a, a what we could do practical effects wise today with that instead of having new, like you know Del Toro's uh, um, Shape of Water. That was excellent, and that was Doug Jones in pr- practical effects. I'd love to see a Gilman, you know, to really bring that forward. So you know, who knows? Who knows where it's going to go? But exciting times as far as the horror universe or horror genre goes oh man so much cool stuff so oh what was it uh so we talk about the thing yeah people are mentioning alien alien was amazing thing as well no more alien films the problem with alien with the alien franchise alien one you know groundbreaking you know awesome film aliens two or aliens alien two aliens James Cameron. I mean, you can't go wrong. It's James, James Cameron. Like, he's like, well, we're not going to repeat what Ridley did. We're just going to bring in the guns and everybody's a fucking badass. Awesome. And we're okay I love with it. that. And we're okay with that. It's just wonderful. Because it was nice to see, oh, the universe is, this, this world is bigger and there's like heavy action in it as well, the Colonial Marines. And then Alien 3. I love Alien 3. I like what David Fincher did with it. Even David Fincher hates his own movie. I happen to like Alien 3. I like, I'm a Charles S. Dutton fan. I'm a Charles Dance fan. Sigourney Weaver was hot when she was bald. And the Alien was badass. I, I <laughs> like the direction it went to. It made the universe bigger. But then Alien Resurrection, fuck you, Joss Whedon. That was a terrible goddamn script. And fuck you, uh, the, the, to the French guy who directed it, no, who had no concept of what he was doing. I can't even remember the dude's name. Uh, he, he's not important. But Ridley messed it up. Be, well, I wouldn't say that Ridley messed it up. It's Ridley's idea. It's Ridley's project. It's his baby. So whatever he intended initially from the start, that's what he was exploring with Prometheus and Covenant. Now, Prometheus was pure Ridley Scott. That was pure Ridley. That was his idea. That's where he wanted to go. Covenant was Ridley taking his idea and compromising with what the public wanted. So he's bringing the two together because he realized Prometheus really didn't really didn't set, sit well with fans. So he said, "Okay, let's give let's give the fans what they want, but let's marry that with my vision." And so that's what Covenant was. Unfortunately, that turned out to be kind of just Alien two point, you know, like two point just a, a redux of the first one with some elements from Aliens with the with the with the heavier action. 
And we don't know if we're going to get a third one, but there is potentially a reboot coming up. We have no idea. I think um, we read about there's a potential reboot of the Alien universe sometime in the future. I don't know. I haven't heard any further details about that, but well, I guess we'll see. Uh, see, and a lot of it, a lot of it just says Mr. Mark. The first Alien is awesome because Aliens, as I've said before, it's a slasher movie in space, and you didn't mm-hmm. know what it was. And it's just, they're trying to figure out, as the audience, you're trying to figure out what's going on. And the ship itself is an excellent setting because you're trapped with it. It's dark. And then James Cameron sees it and it's like, well, let's up it. Let's add more action. And we're going to show how deadly the Xenomorph is. It's because now you've got trained Marines ready for combat (laughs) and they're getting slaughtered too. So they just shows how strong the Xenomorph is. And but there's so much characterization that goes on that a lot of the later movies miss because yeah. when you, even when you're looking at the Marines in uh, the second one in terms of Corporal Hicks and Bill Paxton's character and Apoc and so many and uh, not Apoc 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 yeah. is Matrix uh, <laughs> <laughs> and but the thing is is there's so much great characterization and that's what a lot of the films are missing is focusing on the characters so when they die when they're in danger we care about them yeah yes yeah. so, like you know the 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 interactions between all the Marines you I mean every there's every single one meant something because everybody had their moment to kind of solidify even characters like Wierzbowski had mm-hmm. moments where they got to develop who they were even the pilot the pilot who was in there for like 45 seconds <laughs> I liked her she I felt bad when she died I felt so died. bad <laughs> you know and so you know there's so many great moments and then you have like you you have the the relationships between Hicks and Hudson Hicks and Vasquez Hicks and um a pwn as well. You the, the the world building in that was important, like that because we already have Ripley established. Now we establish everybody else. Paul Reiser, we all fucking hated him because he was just like the slimy fucking bureaucrat and shit. And it was like when yep. he gets got, it's like fuck yes, you got got. So and not to mention, you know, you got to do you got to do all this beautiful exploration, which is what made that one so fantastic. And that's what is what drew me to Alien Three because you still have Ripley exploring you know, but you have all these other different characters that i thought were brilliantly done charles s dutton even though the whole like double y chromie thing is just science fiction it's a science fiction movie okay yeah. so but you have charles s dutton you have charles dance and you have all the all the individuals in the prison pete postal wait fuck yes you had all the different personalities in the prison and then all of a sudden it's a male prison never seen a woman in like decades all of a sudden a woman shows up and it's fucking ripley fuck yes what are you gonna do and I love the, that the two alien things that have come into this environment have now disrupted things because it's not just the alien that showed up. It's Ripley as well. It's also alien to the environment, which I love the dichotomy there because now the prisoners are both in a, in a survival imperative, but for two different reasons, to not die from the monster and their urges because there's a woman nearby, because there's a woman here. So I and I love what that does and how all of the different actors play with that. That's why, that's why I think that film is brilliant. And a lot of people kind of gloss over that. But that's just me. I'm just I'm I'm not trying to turn polish Alien Three. I just fucking really really enjoy that movie. I really do. I just <laughs> I just really do. Uh, let me see. Uh, before we jump in, Paracord Princess is here. Good to see you, Paracord, Paracord Princess. Thanks so much for being here, Joshua Lee as well. Good to see you, uh, Mr. Boyd says I love the Wolfman. Fuck yes. 
I'm looking forward to it. Whatever universe, you know, how they do it, hopefully we get some we'll solid. Oh, and it goes. And Andy says, how do I get out of this chicken shit outfit? <laughs> you stole that shit, Hudson. <laughs> I fucking love that. If you ain't been keeping up on current events, we just got our asses kicked, pal. <laughs> Dude. Oh, rest even even uh, Paracord Princess. Hey, Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? No, have you? <laughs> I fucking love I fucking love Vasquez and her relationships with everybody there, especially with Gorman, with the lieutenant, because you're you're ex-military. Are you oh, you're, yeah. you're former military? So you know the lieutenant and the you know the officer and the enlisted relationship. And he's like, How many, how many drops does it make for you, Lieutenant? Um, so it was like uh what was it? It was how many drops does it make for you? Uh 37 simulated. How many combat drops? Uh, two, including this one. <laughs> like, what the fuck? And then fucking Hicks is just... It's okay. Okay, <laughs> real quick before we dive into this movie, because I'll tell you, I'll tell y'all a fantastic story from uh, Afghanistan, right? Oh shit! And so, uh, so we had we went we had our base, and we had our lieutenant who was sitting there. He's walking around the base. And the lieutenant sees this uh, unidentified Afghan, or it's two unidentified Afghan males walking around the base, like inside the wire, no idea who they were, no uniforms, nothing. So the lieutenant radios it in to the command center. Hey, by the way, da-da-da-da-da, cool, we need to send our quick reaction force, see who they are, we don't know. This was like... A month ago in Iraq, uh, some Afghans, a suicide bomber, ran into a chow hall and blew up a chow hall. So this was like a month after this happened. So when we hear two unidentified Afghan males inside, everybody starts freaking out. Cool. So QRF goes and finds the lieutenant. And like the, we go and we're like, hey, where are they? Lieutenant was like, I lost them. We're like, what? <laughs> well, I saw them. I radio in and then I ran. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah, like, yeah, I ran. <laughs> I ran away. This this was our company commander, and we're like, okay, so like we need to find where they are. And about three minutes later, we get a call from the supply lot from some PFC who's like, "Hey, I detained two Afghan males that are walking around." I just thought y'all should know. <laughs> so you have some 18-year-old kid by himself who detains them and does his actual job while the lieutenant ran. <laughs> That's fucked up. That's... <laughs> so and apparently it was okay. It was apparently they're part of the Afghan army and stuff. So like I said, no one got hurt. There were um, you know, nothing nothing bad happened, but it just I always think of that story when I think of uh, lieutenants. <laughs> that's wild that's fucking wild i like you know james cameron i think had some excellent input going into that and he i think do you think he captured the essence of the military related you know, like the relationships in the military well i thought I, I, not to mention them dealing with this lieutenant who's coming in it's like oh great gorman's here what the fuck and then apone's just like we gotta fucking deal with this shit fucking get your asses in gear and then ripley coming in as the advisor and how they kind of react to outsiders. I thought it was brilliantly done. And it was what drives the movie, especially when everybody finds themselves in the shit. Yeah. It, 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 and even at that point when the battle actually starts happening, 
And Ripley's like, make a decision, do something, yeah. get them out of there, do something. And then she's the one that actually gets controls of the, I can't remember the vehicle's called, and drives it in and helps rescue the Marines. See, and it's because it's because you, they, she's proven herself. She took control of the situation. She did what needed to be done, and she got and she's and she got the job done. Whereas Gorman's like, until you know, until yeah. finally, you know, and, and too late, he find if you know, Gorman finds his fangs. They have an epic sequence with fucking Vasquez and the and the fucking Grenados. Like, oh, oh, he was so, like, you were always an asshole. <laughs> you were always an asshole, Gorman. <laughs> fuck yeah! <laughs> like, oh, fucking love it. Oh, damn. And oh, it wasn't just uh, it was it, I keep I keep forgetting the other dude, because um, I gotta give you it was Vasquez and Hicks and Hudson and there's uh, but the other dude that the big guy, um, son of a bitch and not to mention Lance Hendrickson, in you know as fucking Bishop was fucking brilliant. Oh yeah, the, uh, son of a bitch, the guy who uh, the other big dude who was friends with um, Vasquez, big tall blonde haired guy. Oh, oh! The, he was the other uh, incentive. Yeah, the one with, with, right. with the with the with the with the belt with the uh, the hip uh, the hip situated mini gun or the hip situated. Yeah, yeah. The um, I want to say they're called incinerators. And I can't remember what his name was. Son of a bitch! Oh, so someone in the live chat's going to remind me. Oh, of that. Yeah. But you know what? Let us know down in the comments below uh, the future of the dark universe. Does Universal does Universal uh, have something going on there? Is this a possibility? Would you like to see, you know, things similar like Del Toro's Frankenstein or a new Wolfman film or possibly even a creature from the Black Lagoon? Let us know what you think uh, down there in the comments below. Or of course, at weekendhorror.gmail.com. Love to hear your thoughts on that. And if you'll go and see these movies when they come out, I tell you, I will go see Last Voyage of the Demeter. I think it looks fucking amazing. Not to mention, I love fucking Liam, Liam Cunningham and everything he does. Oh, yeah. If you ever get, huh? Oh, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was like, if you ever get to see, he did a horror movie. Liam Cunningham, Liam Cunningham did a horror movie. Drake. Thank you. Drake. That was oh, it. Oh, it was Drake. Yeah, okay. guns. Yes, it was Drake. Drake, we are leaving. <laughs> <laughs> we are going. <laughs> I love it when he turns in, when he turns in like the trigger, he like turns it in and the basket just hands him another There's one. Like, hands him another one. <laughs> I like to keep this close. I like to keep this handy for close encounters. <laughs> it's like... Take the smart gun, but I've got my 12 gauge. <laughs> oh, Drake. Thank you so much, Raven Dark. Sorry, it was Drake. Um, let me see here. So uh I, I totally spaced where, where I was going with that. I totally you know, my, my, missed my train of thought. But yeah, definitely let us know down in the comments below. Future of the of the, the potential universal dark universe, the universal uh, studios, the original monsters. So hopefully we'll get some good stuff. Definitely gonna see last voice of the movie. Oh, it was Liam Cunningham. Liam Cunningham oh, yeah. was in a horror movie called um i think it was let us pray where he plays what may or may not be the devil oh yeah and he lets himself get arrested and he's sitting in a prison cell and he's like and like he knows what's gonna happen it's all fucking chaotic and all this fucking you know it's blood death destruction all around him but he may or may not be satan himself i'm not sure so i don't know it's very ambiguous but he was really good in that so well, so speaking of which, because I know we've gone off on a tangent, and there's yes, never wrong, did. never wrong <laughs> talking about Jenkins Cameron and Aliens. Like talk about that all day. But we do have a couple of movies that people are here for us to talk about. Yes, yes, we do. What do we got first? All right. This kicks one up. Oh, and I have to say, uh, Sir Captain says this week's tangent brought to you by James Cameron. Thank you, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So the first movie we're going to talk about tonight 
released April 23rd, 2017. So it's a fairly recent one. Um, just past the moratorium. So we can talk about this. We, we can talk in depth about this one. Uh, and it is called The Wicked One. Let's check out this trailer. All right. So we have The Wicked One, uh, written and uh, written by, or directed by Tori Jones, written by Tori Jones and Cheyenne Gordon, and starring Katie Stewart, Dale Miller, and Jack Norman. Um, the story follows a group of traveling friends who are hoping for a little fun-filled Halloween weekend getaway, uh, who find themselves in the crosshairs of one of the most dangerous and prolific serial killers in history. Um, it's not that like that real life based, uh, but it's essentially there's this. Uh, this killer who is a residue who's like lived in the area before and he's been, you know, in an insane asylum for a long time and he escapes and he goes on a killing spree. So it's kind of gives it away a little bit that the name of the town that they're in is called Carpenter Falls because it absolutely takes so much influence from Halloween and not just Carpenter, Carpenter's Halloween, but all, but predominantly and I know if you watch this one, you see it like it predominantly takes influence from uh, zombies from Rob Zombie's Halloween. Here's a bad place to pull from. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so, so I went and so I watched it. Um, it, basically, and somebody already commented. The first comment we got after this trailer is the cinematography. The lighting on this film is atrocious. Yeah, it's it's not good. It's, it's not so good. so bad, and it, it could be possibly excusable if it was maybe two thousand eight, two thousand nine, little indie when digital cinema was still very new. But this film came out in two thousand seventeen. Uh, I shot better stuff on a DSLR <laughs> in two thousand seventeen with nothing than what they shot um, on it. It's it looks like a glorified film student project, like a like a senior thesis film, where it's just like it just everything was kind of half there. And I knew from the very first kill where he goes in the basement, he like stabs a girl in the chest. That very first kill was like, oh, this is gonna be bad. <laughs> this, is, this is gonna be when he's stabbing her and her body's not even reacting, it's like a <laughs> and she's not even dead yet. <laughs> I was like, "This is this is this is bad. It's gonna be very bad." <laughs> hey, Glover Mom, good to see you. Thanks so much. And my apologies, uh, Raven. Um, I accidentally misgendered Raven. I said I said he for some reason. I just felt like that Raven is is female. So I apologize, Raven. I will I will remember that. My bad. I may have been moving too quickly, but you are correct on that one. It was just by you know, from what I saw. Um, despite and you know, despite you know, I'm a big slasher fan, and I and I like to see you know if you know where, where they pull from and what they can bring to the slasher genre. And Jones did fairly decent in my interpretation. The problem was that I think that the lighting issue was a very amateur mistake that often gets made when you don't have a lot of money to spend. Which is where I've got to give Jones some credit because the film was only shot for twelve thousand dollars, which is a which is nothing. Nowadays, 12 grand, I mean, to shoot an entire feature film, not to mention it's a slasher film, which means you've got money going towards your killer, you got money going towards your kills, and of course, all the location judge, which is the reason why there are so few cast 
Like the cast is so small and the location of where most of everything takes place is on the farmhouse is, you know, at the, at the, uh, the residence with some, with another sequence that's in the insane asylum. So it typically, it, it moves, but there's only like three locations, the farmhouse, the insane asylum, and of course, like the, the party, like the Halloween party that everybody goes to where the band plays. And so the, the thing that stuck out to me is that so much of this was taken from, from Halloween. But I will say that while it did copy the whole, like he killed his family and just like it, just like, you know, the Rob Zombie one, the splatterific way he did do that. He winds up in insane asylum. Even the sequence when the guards come to get him, because they have to move him. They have to like temporarily move him. The guards come to get him. He's like, he's wearing a mask. He's got masks all over his room. He's like, Oh, he's really into masks and shit. And then they move him out, and then all of a sudden they do the switch room where he escapes. He kills the guard, very Jason X style, and then proceeds to release all the inmates. And then he kills, he goes on like a house to house rampage and he kills someone. He kills two people exactly the way uh, Danny Trejo and uh, the stepdad was killed in the uh, in the in Zombies Halloween. So he kills one in the recliner, drowns Danny Trejo, and you know, and so. Everything is copied, but I will say this, despite how much was pulled and despite how much they kind of copied these things, it didn't feel like, I didn't get the, the, the sense of like, oh crap, they just copied these kills. Like, oh, he used this because the cinematography choices were a little bit different. He did some smarter choices with the camera or some different choices that weren't bad that I thought showed them in a different angle, which I thought was pretty decent. I thought I was like, okay, at least he's trying to make it his own in some way which is smart. Some people would just wrote copy and it's fucking, it's just a rip off. And you're like, eh. so at least he was trying to fill that void, which I didn't find too bad. Plus I love the additional mythology of this creature out there somewhere that possessed him that we only get some fleeting glimpses of. So there's a, an implied larger mythology here, which is not something that was in Halloween. They didn't, they never addressed that. So I did like the attempt at world building. So there were some good elements. So it, it, this is kind of the situation where I feel that copying kind of works best. Whereas like you use what worked that other directors have done. You change it up a little bit to try and give it a, you know, try to look at it from a different angle, probably do something new. And you added to it, which is not bad. It's admirable. I have to give him that, you know, because it wasn't just rote copying. It was like he tried to make it his own. With only 12 grand, there's only so much you can do. You know, I just wish the lighting had been better. Because shooting at night is a fucking bitch. You know, it, it happens. It, see, the thing, and it's hard for me to get really into a story when a film has so many technical issues. Lighting being one of them. It does have some sound techni technical issues. A lot of, like, canned sound. Uh, canned sound is, for example, if you need footsteps, instead of recording footsteps on set or having a Foley artist record footsteps, you find footsteps on, on a website and then you just kind of, like, drop them in. So it never just lines up right or it just sounds right. It was just a lot of technical stuff. And it's like, it would have been better if they shrunk the scale down some and then did better execution. And that's oh, like, okay, honestly, that's, okay. the, that, that's the biggest thing. And it's going a little bit more kind of on their own because it, it just really does have that, that Halloween feel. But the thing is, it's like, I've already seen that. Like, give me, give me at least a little, a little something new. I know you're pulling from Halloween. So many people pull from Halloween. How many right. times has 
Carpenter name come up in films somewhere, or Carpenter Falls, or Carpenter Town, or some character is like, oh, this is William Carpenter. I I, I get it. It's cool. That's great. Dude, that we, we, watch, we watched Death Machine. There was a fucking character named John Carpenter in that fucking movie. <laughs> exactly. It happens a lot. It's like, what are the names of our characters? Uh, Raimi. Uh, John Carpenter. Uh, really? That that's what you're gonna do? Fuck it, you know. Fuck it. Tell your story. It's got Brad Dourif, so fuck it. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Why not? I just spending a little bit more time getting the execution down, and I always tell beginning filmmakers they always have these broad ideas, and they always want to hop to that feature film. And I had a I had somebody messaging me today, and they wanted to do a sixty-seven page short film in four days. And I'm really? like, like, no, like, maybe kind of downscale that a little bit. Like, gotta, narrow your scope. Yeah. <laughs> what you want to do is you always you want to start off small. I always recommend starting off on doing table scene. And a table scene is where you have two actors sitting down somewhere having a conversation. You don't have to worry about blocking because they don't have to move around. They they can sit they can sit at a table and something that's like three minutes long. And that way you get a solid execution. And if you have issues with that, then you do it again and you can like better. You can move it. You can move the setting from like maybe now it's kitchen. Now it's outside and so forth. Get it down so where you can make a technically sound film because it's a lot harder to do than people realize. And then once you're able to make a technically sound film, then you can start leaning towards what you actually want to do because technical issues pull people out of films real quick a real a real quick like uh one thing that i noted while i was while i was watching while i was watching this one uh before i watched i watched the sequel immediately after this one but wow. while i was watching this one because i had to see where it was going to go <laughs> so i was watching this one the first thing i noted was that the the extraneous like you really only needed two locations you didn't need anything external you could have shot everything at the farmhouse and then use the the insane asylum as an alternative location. If you free up money without having to do the additional location, if you free that money up, that allow you to find a better location for the insane asylum stuff because that place looked very cheesy, looked very obvious that this was. I thought it was a school, yeah. you know, like that was it was being utilized for this. There there are better locations, and if you have the money, you can do that. Everything should have been sent around the farmhouse. That's part of that lowering in scope. It's like you can literally move all of the elements of the movie to the farmhouse alone. You can even say that the town puts on this Halloween festival at the site of these brutal murders, you know, as kind of a thing. And so they, they have this kind of like party that goes on out there and everybody kind of converges on this place. And then you have the murder kind of taking place around the area, especially after the party ends, he escapes, makes home, and then the stragglers there that are left there, they wind up getting killed as well. You, there's ways to narrow it down to make it a little bit stronger. So you're not having to jump between actually four different locations because there was the party, there was their house, there was the the bad the, the bad guy house, and there was the asylum. You can cut two of those locations out and think about all the money you save on the locations themselves, on the travel between, the paying people in order to move all your shit over. All of that is payroll that is saved up that you can now apply to other places that needed it, like improving location of the, of the asylum and maybe a little bit more production value in the barn area, which would have been cool. But I will say, despite the the ball where they dropped the ball, the kills were decent, which is not typically what I would I would expect in a movie of this low budget. So we know they put their money in some of the right places. 
And so it just, yeah, not really the design of the bad guy. The design of the bad guy was pretty basic. Guy with bag on his head. Yeah. That was pretty much it. But the kills themselves were quite solid. I thought were really, really good. There's only one that dropped the ball, and that was when the boyfriend gets smoked after banging his girl. And that's a thankful thing. At least he got laid. At least he got laid before (laughs) before he died. He got laid, and it was amazing. It was a good scene. It was actually well shot. He gets laid, then he gets killed, thankfully. And so that one was kind of dropped the ball, but all the other ones I thought were quite solid. And I liked it. And then it ends with the whole, like, he's hanging in the barn, you know, Friday the 13th Part 3 style. And then he wakes up, oh, I'm alive. So, and that's what leads to the sequel. is because he, you know, the bad guy survives. Uh, and when, but ultimately, huh? that part where, like, she's, so she's sitting there and in the barn and she's like, go for it, go for it, kill me. And then he, like, grabs her and it's, like, in this weird slow motion thing that was just bad like it was just when yeah. he's like choking her there's and... some inconsistency because the dude is like fucking superhuman strength which yeah. is demonstrated in the movie and then it takes him forever to like strangle this chick he should have just like popped her head off like a goddamn cork as strong <laughs> as they made him out to be is like this guy's got like next levels because he's possessed he's yeah. possessed by like a demon or something so he's like oh i got power and then, oh, a tiny child won't strangle. I what can't are you doing? finish this off. And then, and then all, then all of a sudden, he gets a rope around, and then the killer is yeah. in the barn. So, so it was odd. But I will give, I will give credit to, uh, to Jones. I liked the world building he was trying to make. I think that this worked out a lot better on paper. That happens a lot. You get a screenplay, you get the screen, the, the screenplay whittled down, and then things can can get in the way when you're finally on set and you get the gears, you get the things rolling, you run into problems. It's guaranteed to happen. You try to plan as much as you can, but sometimes things go, you know, people, you know, actors drop out, locations become unavailable. All of a sudden you have to switch. They may have had a better location for the insane asylum, but all of a sudden it fell through and they found something really quick on the fly and they just had to make do with it. You never know what's going to go on behind it. But unfortunately, technical issues, the ones you brought up make those other things even worse they like they make them stand out because we get so annoyed looking at dark scenes that's hard to tell what's going on or bad audio we start looking at other things and when we're looking at those other things we see the lack of production value or the lack of planning and it makes it it makes the whole experience even worse so it it really does and that's one of the things is i didn't realize that they had twelve thousand. you have the budget whatever you have but investing in like a gaffer like just oh, yeah. just to up the lighting. You need a Johnny O. Yes, you, you need, need a Johnny, Johnny O. o. <laughs> you should have had him there. Johnny you Ortega. Well. You would have seen what's going on. He would have he would have knocked it out of the park. Johnny Ortega, master master gaffer. Absolutely. Yes. It's you know, and but I will say this for the lack of budget for the you know where John I like I enjoyed the film. It wasn't just like it wasn't a slog. I, there are movies that are slogs. I didn't feel like. Silent Hill Revelation watching this movie. I would watch this movie again over like Silent Hill Revelation, which actually put me to fucking sleep in the theater. The movie was so goddamn boring. At least this one had something to offer. And I liked the world that he was building. It's the re- is the reason it got a sequel, which I don't think was all as, as bad. Some of the acting, eh, not so great. <clears throat> Especially the additional killers, because it was the Wicked Ones was the sequel, because they added more bad guys. Oh, of course. I thought that... I thought there was that, you know, the acting was kind of terrible. I would definitely would have cast differently for, for the two, for the brother and sister killers. I would have cast that differently. And then, of course, because, um, again, they, in the sequel, they explore the elements of the, in the, the infective power of violence, just like Zombie did in Halloween 2. 
the idea that violence spreads, that that trauma and violence infects those who are affect, who are affected by the initial trauma violence, and you know has an effect in their lives, and they themselves react to other things with violence, you know, because of their trauma. So that's where Zombie was trying to explore. I think he was a little ahead of his time, and it really didn't come out very well in, in Halloween too. But they did the same thing with the Jones did the same thing with the Wicked Ones. But I will say. The world building that he made, where he explores a little bit more of the demon, what it's doing, the effect of it. And I want him to go in that direction. I want him to go. I want to see more of that. So I want to see, because now all of a sudden, like, like the lead girl, who's the survivor from the first film, she has a vision of, a, of her friend, a Jeepers Creeper style, who died in the first movie, who comes to warn her. And during this vision... She sees like this throne thing with this fucking demon thing sitting in it. And it's all kind of, it's kind of blurring out of focus. And it's like, but he was building up to something, but we never see any more of it. It's like, what the shit? I want more of that. So that leads me to my question. <clears throat> I want to ask the audience. The Wicked One made for 12,000, dropped the ball in some areas, but not bad, some decent world building and some decent choices as far as like kills go and the, and the, you know, the graphic nature of the, of the slasher genre. Then you have the sequel, which kind of expanded a little bit on the mythology, didn't really add much more acting, you know, like that, some bad choices there. But the world building is interesting enough that I think may deserve an additional, like, film, maybe a prequel. I don't know. I want to ask the audience, do you think the world building that Jones has created here, that he's developing here, does it deserve a prequel or maybe a third film to kind of wrap things up? even though the primary killer got, you know, supposedly gets killed at the end of the sequel. But I'm very, very curious. Do you think that this deserves like a seek a prequel to like explore the mythology, maybe the origins of this thing, or possibly even uh, a third one to kind of wrap things up? Let us know in the comments below or here in the live chat, or of course at weekendhorror@gmail.com, your thoughts on this, or should the, the you know, it's, we got two movies and that's enough and it should be done. Jones should move on to other things. Let us know what you think. I'd love is to the sequel lit better? The sequel is lit better. Okay. okay. Yes, it is a little better. Especially the, the, the there's actually a really in the sequel they they go back to the barn, the original barn that they were that they were fighting in. So there's a lot of consistency between the sequel and the first one, and they have a throwdown in like where it's like the entire because now it's the two survivors from the first film. It's like years later, and now they have kids of their own. So they have they have like three kids or two kids, three kids. I think anyway, it's a family. And it becomes a family affair because there's a scene where the entire family is kicking the shit out of him, out of the bad guy in the barn. Like, we're fucking like the boy style where he's like, uh, he's getting hit from all angles, which is actually really, really well shot. I'll give him that because he was like, oh, I'm the killer. And then he's like, he's got the freaking crowbar. Bam. And then the wife's got the golf club. Bam. And he's like, oh, shit, I'm getting fucked up. <laughs> so it's some decent stuff in there. I do. Uh, Sir Kevin says two bombs are more than enough. And Joshua Lee says, prequel. Needs a prequel. I would like to see a prequel. (laughs) (laughs) I think Jones could do it. I want him to explore the mythology. I want to know more about this demon thing that possesses people and drives them to just murder indiscriminately like everybody. Especially, there's thematic shit there. There's like the crucifixion scene. Like, you know, he's like crucifying people shit. Where does that come from? I'd like to know more about this. Casey Cooper says, need a dual barrel t- uh, turd polisher. Dude, the, the turd polisher literally runs on just like straight oil out of the earth. No refining. 
you just set it on fire and it just goes. That's why it's so smoky in here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, definitely let us know what you think down in the comments below. Absolutely. Wicked One's prequel or maybe a third film to wrap up the mythology. All right, man. What do we got next? I'm so glad I gave this one to you. <laughs> <sighs> It was just weird. It was so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> just, uh, I, I was watching the movie. And I'm like, why? Why? People don't act like that. But so the next one we have is My Demon Lover, which was released April 24th, 1987. Roll it. All right. <laughs> you have to admit. It's a it's a nice little break from what we normally watch. <laughs> <laughs> Was not expecting that, but yes. all right. So you got my demon lover directed by Charlie Levothan. Levothal. How do you pronounce that? Loventhal. Loventhal. Starring Scott Valentine, Michelle Little, Robert Trebor, Alan Fudge, Gina Gallego, and Arnold Johnson. And basically, you have, uh, in a nutshell, you have Michelle Little befriends a street drifter who happens to also be a demon. And that's it. There, there's <laughs> shit doesn't get real. There's nothing. It but. is. It is absolutely a, a an eighties rom com. It's an eighties rom com, in every sense of the word. Every sense of the word. This thing is an eighties rom com. It has all the eighties rom com tropes. The only difference is the lead, the actor, the, the 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 guy in the in the in the relationship is a fucking demon, or he turns into a demon when he becomes sexually aroused. So, <laughs> and, and he says, "Wait, that wasn't real, right? It was it's absolutely real." <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's okay. a whole movie. Peter Noddle says, "Now that's my kind of horror movie." So, okay, this is okay. The reason I'm so glad we got to talk about this, I finally get, we get to sit down to watch this one. Obviously, not a lot of people knew this movie existed. It came out in 1987, and it was by New Line Cinema. So, the house that Freddie built released this bad boy, you know, which is weird. You're they right, all the can't film, be winners. They all can't be winners. This is true, but I will give it this. And Scott Valentine delivers a fucking performance that I will remember because he takes this thing to the fucking to the hilt. He plays that character to the absolute hilt. But this is what's I found it interesting because this is one of those moments where the horror saves the day. Because this movie, if there was no horror element, if there was no like guy turning into a fucking demon and shit, and then the big demon battle, everything, and you know, the and then the the demon there's two demons in the movie. There's one is Scott Valentine's character. He's like, ah, oh. and then there's another demon that's running around as a serial killer. So what they're and just murdering all these women. So we don't know if the demon is if the, the serial killer demon and Kaz, the, the guy who turns into a demon, are the same thing. So it turns out it's not, then there's a big climactic demon battle at the end with some really goofy special effects, but at least uh, character effects. I say it's like, you know, like practical effects. I would say on par with Nightbreed, which I felt were pretty decent at the time. I'll give it that. The, the character design of that was fairly decent. But if this was just a rom-com, this movie would fucking suck. It was so boring as far as the, the exposition and the, oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm unlucky in love in 80s New York, which 
I love 80s New York because it's such a fucking cesspool. <laughs> they always portray New York in the 80s as this rat-infested nightmare hellscape, like this, or like this earth, like this urban hellscape where everybody is just everybody you meet is just garbage. So, but it, it blows. But they throw in the the demon element, and I think ultimately that saves the film. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily call saving the film. <laughs> it's kind of a stretch. But like the the entire time I'm watching it, and like when she when she meets uh, Scott Valentine, like talking about one of the most unrealistic scenes you can ever see, because she's sitting at a restaurant, and she's like sitting there, and she gets her tofu burger, and she's out on like the patio, and it's a nice, beautiful day, and she's enjoying the outside weather, and then you have. This it's definitely, fucking- it's definitely, sorry, it's definitely it's commentary on veganism or like vegetarianism because it's like beets, grains, lecithin, lecithin. It's like this yeah. weird fucking burger. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. So <laughs> she's enjoying her nice day out in this patio and there happens to be a trash pile next to this patio because that's where trash piles are. Because <laughs> that's 80s New York, man. <laughs> piles York. of garbage <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and then you have this guy who looks homeless. Like, crawl out of it, staggers around, sees, and then he goes up to her and starts begging for her food, which she eventually, like, gives him, and he, like, spits it. He eats the food and then spits it back on her, and then they just walk off, and they have this conversation going down the street. That's the love Are you kidding me? (laughs) That's the love interest. The love interest opens up with basically a homeless vagrant begging for her food and then eats it and then like just spits it up all over her because it tastes disgusting it's like it's all over her dress and shit it's just fucking insane seriously that's that's how they mean i want i want to hear one woman one woman on this planet go oh i met the love of my life and husband when he was on a trash pile and he came up (laughs) ate food and spit it on me and i knew right then i was in love it's the movie is so it's it's so fucking just it's so absurd and ridiculous, but I, I love it for the 80s tropes. Peter Noddle says B grade is BS. <laughs> Absolutely is. <laughs> Dr. Nimrod, good to see you. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Uh, he popped into the chat. Good to see you. Global Mob says Scott Valentine was so was popular because he was Mallory's boyfriend from Family Ties. It's true. And I I love what he brought to this. And that's the beauty. That's one thing I noticed about that. Something that I wanted to kind of dive into. There's not much to really much say about this one, other than the things we've already said. It's 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 decently shot. It's got this weird fucking plot. The practical effects are fairly decent. The, the reason this is horror, and I will give this for 1986, the whole sequence, and you saw it in the trailer, when he runs his head into the wall and his head is gone, that turns into this nightmarish sequence where he then starts to shift his image to like other people. And then all of a sudden, like, he splits open at one point and there's, like, yellow goo everywhere and fucking, like, tentacles and shit flying out. It's, like, it's really grotesque. And th- there's elements that really drive the horror home in this thing. But otherwise, it's a goofy fucking... Yes, sarcasm's right. A cocaine-fueled spitballing <laughs> session that led to this fucking script. But one thing is interesting. And good to see you, Extra J. Thanks so much for being here. Peter Noddle says, that sounds not unlike my wife's meeting me story. <laughs> but she crawled out of the trash pile and then threw up all over you. So. <laughs> but this was intriguing. So I noticed, I've, I've noticed sometimes that throughout the 80s, especially with acting choices, that in the 80s, 
acting choices that you predominantly see are all very, very high energy. You had people who were very big on the camera, very loud, very, every moment is extremely high energy to the point that you're kind of wondering, how could this person possibly exist being at this, being literally at like 11 the entire film? It's always big, 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 big. You know, so, and you look at like what Valentine was bringing this, what the other characters do as well. Their emotional moments are always super, super large. Now, the reason we don't typically see that is because that kind of acting is typically reserved for the stage. When you're like, you're on, you're on a stage, you're recessed on a stage, and then you have an entire auditorium you have to fill, so you have to play everything big. But when you're on camera, you can play things small. But however, in the 80s, and especially in the 70s and 80s, everything was played large. Big, big characterizations, big, big emotions, big, huge moments, lots of frenetic activity. You look at Tom Hanks throughout a lot of his performances, Turner and Hooch, big, okay? Always, especially in comedy, everybody was a fucking clown. But nowadays, you don't see that as much anymore. In here in the aughts and the in the 2010s, and you know, go, going to where we are now, we've seen a decline in that. Now we look at that acting and we say it's fucking goofy. And what I think would like to pose was that performances like this that we now are kind of like we kind of, it's kind of it's, it's like uh it's kind of off putting. The reason for that, what I speculate is, is that because camera technology has improved so much from the 80s to now that we don't need that anymore because the physical nuance can come out in greater detail now that we have better technology. So as a result, we needed to see these comedic moments come forward, but because you're shooting a wide shot, right? And a lot of details in there to get someone's comedic moments, it, you're going to have in that natural grain. And so you need them to be big to sell the moment, to be the clown. But nowadays, Everything's so high def. We don't need to do that anymore. So you can rein it in and bring it down and we can convey it in your face. And then we can see in greater detail and we don't need these big things, which is, which is my speculation is that the improvement in technology has dramatically altered how we see actors on screen these days. See, I would, I would come from the history when he's talking about film acting, how the very first films were basically like stage plays and the stage has influenced acting so much. And a lot of times you have these actors that transition between doing stage and film, stage and film, back and forth, back and forth. And even when you think about, okay, you're in the 80s. Well, if you take the director, well, what time period did what time period did they grow up in? They grew up probably in the 40s and 50s, where stage was big in the 40s filmmaking, it was about escapism. You had these big musical numbers. You had everything was just big. And we're finally getting to a point now, and probably about the last 10 years, where upcoming filmmakers and upcoming actors aren't influenced by the stage anymore. You're not having these big productions because in the 90s, things are starting to scale down. You're not having these a lot of these big musical numbers, these over-top performances, because it's like you start scaling down, people are looking for a little bit more realism now in their filmmaking versus like in the 60s. So as people are looking for more realism, people are looking for things that feel a little bit more natural, even like cinematography lighting wise, they're looking for more kind of a natural feel in lighting versus a lot of the 80s stuff where it still kind of feels like a stage. And so as basically filmmaking as a whole has been going more to this naturalism that it is today where everything's just more subtle. 
And I think this can also come out as far as the director goes, because if a director has a predominantly their experience comes from that stage, uh, from that stage experience, they're going to bring that kind of stage mentality to their actors. So the actors themselves may be like, I think I should play it this way. But the director's like, I think you need to play it this way. And the director is always the last call. You know, he's the one that signs off or they are the one that signs off on whether this if this is going to be you know in the final cut or not. So while some directors will allow their actors to play, some will not. So this could have been the effect of the director as well. This could have been um, Charlie Loventhal, who I couldn't find much information on. But if he came from, you know, you know, like regional, like especially regional player from Broadway as well, he would have this kind of inspiration where these things have to be big, especially in comedy. Everything's got to be large. Everything has to be frenetic. And I was constantly reminded by, by Valentine's performance of Tom Hanks and Turner and Hooch because – Turner Hooch is a beautiful film. I love that movie. Tom Hanks was great in it. But all of, look at his energy throughout the whole film. That dude is so fucking high strung to play to the comedy that it's almost, you know, he's operating at 11, even in a sequence when he's with Mayor Winningham and they're in the kitchen, they're having a lovely little moment where they've just banged and he's going to make her breakfast. Even that scene was way over for, it was, was way too frenetic for me. And that's what I got from this. Even the quiet, intimate moments have to be big because we have to play this particular thing. And so I think that comes from you. I think you're right on that. It comes from having that stage experience and transitioning stage performance to camera performance, which it then it was more kind of blended. Nowadays, we have people who only do movies and then occasionally transfer to stage because we constantly hear about big actors like, and they're going to make their stage debut on this off-Broadway production. Like, holy shit, Jennifer Lawrence is doing fucking stage. Well, that's where I ostensibly I think this is where you should have come up in, you know, doing stage before you transition. But now it's kind of reversed. So it's a changing times, maybe a combination of the two. Just we see this, this fundamental shift in what audiences accept as an appropriate performance. It really is. because, And that's a great point, because now you get to the point where actors usually make a decision very early on. Do you go film? Or do you go stage? And typically, they kind of just stay in their lane at that point. Like I said, occasionally you'll get somebody like Hugh Jackman uh, will go. He, he'll do like some Broadway stuff. That's okay, occasionally, but for the most part, like the film actors that I know, only do film. Like they don't even audition for stage or anything. That's that's just not what they're after, and vice versa on the stage actors that I know. It's also a, a big, a major like the commitment level is different because when you're when you when you go for a stage production, and I've done you know of, of my history of stage production, especially one of the one of the worst performance. Oh, it's not the worst performance. One of the worst productions I've ever been a part of was a was a performance of Dracula where I played Van Helsing, and I had to be big, and so I had to be big and also play a 63 year old German man. So I had to play everything large. And we were trying to be very large, especially at 23 and relatively inexperienced, when I have to put do the German accent and then I have to make the German accent very big in order to fill the space, I come off sounding like Joshua Gabor. It was absolutely you know, ridiculous. But I get that. Oh, and Jail says, of all the productions you were involved in was just, what? <laughs> I have no idea what to talk about. Oh. So, and I, and I, I understand that I, I get, I get that myself is that, yeah, that, that bigness that you're kind of ingrained with. I think that actors should come from stage because that experience is you go to stage, you're doing the production and you're there through all the rehearsals. You have all of your, you you have all of your uh, rehearsals, which is usually like th upwards of three to four weeks before you even start tech. Then you have tech where you show up every single day 
and they're doing all the lighting and making sure all the blocking is correct. So you're running through the scenes every single, just make sure everything is good. Then you have your tech week and then you have your opening. And then you're usually on a typical run. It could be anywhere from two months to six months, sometimes even a year, depending upon who you're contracted with. And that's a year of doing the exact same thing over and over and over again. Whereas a movie, you show up and sometimes you can show up for like five days, shoot your shit, and then you're out. And it's and, done. Then you just move on. So and I can see the I can see the split because as we talk about the difference between stage acting and film acting, with film acting, it's about getting it right one time. And so you can really dive into let's say you have a real emotional moment and you need an actor to cry or grieve or something like that they can throw their all into that one moment and give a brilliant performance because the camera can catch the little nuances the close-ups of the eyes tears coming down the cheek and in stage you can't do that you, right. you psychologically you cannot go to that space 200 times in a year for all the performances over and over over i don't the best actors in the world it would either you would either begin to drop off or it would drive you mentally insane it's just one of the two and so, sometimes when real life kind of invades because sometimes there were times when you know when everything when we were doing the show and everything was funny and there were times when we were doing it was just like because we couldn't help it and there were times when we were doing the show and everything was fucking maudlin and it just dragged so it happens, you know, it's just, that's the reality of it. Film, you just pop it. Like I said, you pop in, you knock it out of the park, then you move on to the next one. Stage is such a, it can be a, it's a wonderful and, and fulfilling and beautiful experience, but it can also be grueling as fuck. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as we, as we digress, as we digress. Yes. Um, so I actually, I want to ask the audience, what is your favorite horror comedy? There are some great ones out there, uh, some that are just hilarious, just funny. I want to know, what is your favorite horror comedy? Let us know in the comments below or shoot us an email at ethanhorror <laughs> at gmail.com. We already got Tucker and Dale. Yeah, oh, there we go. Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Hell, hell yes. That, so Sarcasm says, uh, oh, it's okay. you're just in time. to. Uh, plot hole is showing up. Good to see you. Johnny's in the chat. Good to see you, bud. Says, you're just in time to trash the cesspool of a movie that Dale was polishing. I wasn't polishing. It, I said there were some some elements that were good, like the practical effects were decent, but I was saying that it's a it's a good movie that when you're watching you can see where the where the kind of like film ideology was in the 80s, coming you know in the 70s, the 80s, and going into the 90s, and how things shifted, kind of remind kind of like remembering where people came from and what people were doing at the time, which is why these things were so big, why why it's so different from 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 now. Try to sit in the seat of someone in the 80s watching this movie. Instead of somebody from like 2023 going back and watching this movie. So this movie came out when I was six years old. So I'm kind of like, eh, you know, you, we have that, we have that preconception, but I like going back and saying, wow, what these actors, where did they come from? And likely was because stage was more important. And that's why comedy was conveyed in a different way than it was here, which is why now it's kind of off-putting, but then was, you know, might've been a riot. But, but, see, but see, even going on that, when you talk about like 80s films and the differences, good 80s films hold up today. Because even despite anything that could be, say, like over overacting, you cannot tell me that Back to the Future is still not a phenomenal movie. It's phenomenal, absolutely. But it's, it's, it's Zemeckis, right? That's, I mean, it's yeah. also the direction. And also, yeah, yeah, I mean, but, just, but just think about things. that. Think about how big Michael J. Fox was in that movie. 
Think about that energy that he maintains through the entire oh, fucking done. picture. Oh, oh, Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. Leveled yeah. well, the thing is, as a film, it works. It, it, it just it really does. Whereas in My Demon Lover, it can come across as okay, this is just ridiculous over the top. <laughs> Like, okay, really? I'm just saying there's other other 80s films out there that can take that same energy and they make it work. Right. Oh, Joshua Lee brings up Little Shop of Horrors. Fucking Steve Martin. Feed me, Seymour. (laughs) Steve Martin was fucking insane in that goddamn movie. (laughs) Oh, mama. So so much because of Young Frankenstein has been brought up, Arachnophobia, Beetlejuice, Tucker and Dale, Repossessed, Return of the Living Dead, Shaun of the Dead. There's so many good ones out there. Yeah, But I love this. Huh? No, there there are so many great ones. Another great one, I like uh, Zombie Land. That movie's hilarious. Yeah, uh, and I like. I just like. I dug this one because it was kind of a reminder as to where these, where how far we've come, or how things, how much things have changed as far as a kind of ideological approach to filmmaking, especially with comedies, especially with horror comedies. And so I like that we're in this position where now things are a little bit more nuanced and we have better technology and we can capture those moments without having to put the onus on the actor to sell it to the camera. Now the camera can pick up a lot of that slack. So I really kind of dug it. It's like interesting how they came they, they came at this thing so differently in the 80s. And that's what kind of got me there. Uh, Once Bitten, The Frightener Frighter is fucking amazing. It yeah. absolutely was. All right. So let's jump on to our next one. <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah yeah, it's like yeah so the next just, film get it out of the way the next film we're going to talk about of course is uh killer movie released april 24th 2008 so we're jumping ahead in time again let's check out this trailer <laughs> so those are all the deaths everybody <laughs> that was, yeah, that's pretty much it so uh, so killer movie um, directed by uh, dire- written and directed by Jeff Fisher and starring Paul Wesley, Kaylee Cuoco, Jason London, Al Santos, Asaya Baden, Leighton Meester, uh, Tori DeVito and Nestor Carbonell. Um, the film follows a reality TV crew as they're going to <laughs> shitty 90s horror. Thank you, Johnny. Follows a uh, reality TV crew as they go out to film this uh, small town hockey team that's made it to the champions. You know, basic reality TV shit. When everything all of a sudden is interrupted by a killer, by a slasher, who essentially starts picking off the crew one by one until the big reveal at the end. Um, uh, there's no polishing the figure on this one. The the premise here was solid. It, you know, I can see where they were going with a, a kind of meta-analysis of reality TV for, uh, juxtaposed against the the view of violence and murder and death and goriness like that from a real perspective versus like the, the, the fictional perspective that we see in movies. I see that they were trying to do that. The problem is with this one. This one was rather aggravating. There's one, mostly I really aggravated this movie. There was one thing I dug, but mostly... This film was obnoxious because you had a really decent setup where to explore this kind of meta-analysis of reality TV versus like real violence and horror. And it doesn't work because everybody in this goddamn movie phones their fucking performances in and it is so goddamn obvious. That was so off-putting and just annoying. It was because every time someone's on on the scene has an opportunity to deliver dialogue that can drive this thing home and drive it forward... They're, the actors are just like, I don't give a shit. There was no investment whatsoever. 
everything was formulaic in that respect and it just drags the whole fucking thing drags it could have been very interesting in the hands of the right director okay because it's up to the director to get your actors there or oh, if they this can't is 100% get 100 director exactly if, they, if the direct if the actors can't get there you get them the fuck out and you find an actor who can because and there's just talent here there's fucking talent here I saw more shit. Like I saw that the, the predominantly your lead, your fucking lead, Paul Wesley. I saw him capable of so much more in the fucking Vampire Diaries <laughs> than he was in this. Kelly Cuoco delivers more nuance in the fucking Big Bang Theory than she did in this movie. This movie, it, it's so so bad, and I get what they're trying to do. And the thing is, this Leslie Vernon. That movie actually executes what this movie's trying to do. Yes, yes, that was this what it was almost felt like this what this one wanted to be. And they just and it basically it just misses. I I understand going for oh reality TV is new and what if it goes too far and we're filming deaths. But the thing is, is this the movie just drags on, and the characters are cookie cutter. There's no one says anything that's important at all whatsoever the talk about the dialogue phones in the blocking looks fake anybody it really does i mean there are moments where they're like i'm like why would why would you walk like that what well, there's nothing nothing callie does move where she like spins oh and she's like says like a line of dialogue i'm like no one would do that it's just Bad. Yeah, it, and now I see what Casey Cooper in the live in the live chat says is just like reality TV, and I can see where the intention could be to have your actors do this kind of reality because you know to play like people like you're doing reality TV, so it's not acting, it's all it's not it's scripted, so people are just kind of being themselves. That's why it comes off like they're acting badly. The problem is is that when you're looking at people who are not actors on television, and you're looking at people who are actors playing non-actors on television that's what becomes problematic is because it requires a a very it requires a high level of talent and this is okay for example tropic thunder made a great mockery you can't be a smart actor pretending to be or it's, it's very difficult to be a smart actor playing a dumb character who doesn't know he's dumb the whole problem with simple jack in in tropic thunder and that it's like that's what makes it so difficult to do those kinds of things. He's like, you know, the whole like going full. I don't want to say the word because it'll get me in trouble. But in this one, you've got talented, you've got very talented actors portraying people who are not talented actors, but ostensibly think they're talented actors. And it's a level of commitment that I think either they recognize that they couldn't get to, or they didn't, and they absolutely didn't care, which is why everything is just phone fucking in. That was a bad choice on the director's standpoint to have your characters portrayed like this. There was nothing natural about it, and it all feels very – it's like – it's staged. It all feels very fucking it does, staged because for the, the wrong is, reasons. Is we can tell what is real. That's the, that is the biggest thing. You, you can have somebody – and uh, okay, you're playing a reality show, and there's supposed to be like real life characters, and obviously they're not supposed to come across as acting. But the thing is, we can still feel real. We can pick up on phony and fake really quick. It doesn't matter if the character itself is supposed to be that way. We we pick up on. That's why you, you have the opposite example, which Tropic Thunder makes fun of, is Forrest Gump. 
Forrest Gump feels like a real character the right. entire time, despite the fact that obviously that's not how Tom Hanks is. Everything here feels fake and not even the good fake. So going back to like Leslie Vernon, which has a reality show premise and everybody is does a much better performance. It feels more natural. It feels more real. They feel like real people. And that 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 comes down to the director as well. The second time, I think that was uh, a, a what was that? It was that a, a Zemeckis film. What was the first couple of Zemeckis? Can't remember yeah, who directed. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was another Robert Zemeckis film. Yeah. That's the strength of that director coming out. You could see that with Leslie Vernon. That came down to the director because not everybody's going to have the talent of fucking Tom Hanks and Robin, you know, Robin Wright and all the individuals that were involved in that movie. So to be able to see that and say, this is what I need, but you also have to have smart actors who can articulate that as well. The director gives direction, they take the direction and they run with it. That's what's so very, very important here. This thing was simply in the hands of the wrong director who was trying to be like, okay, it's a meta, it's kind of a meta glimpse scream wise at the look of reality television, how phoned in and how fake it all is. So let's run with that as an overarching theme as to how all of our characters will approach the situation. Incorrect, especially when you have your opening setup moment of Leighton Meester's character getting decapitated with the barbed wire. She's trying to escape the killer. And that is all absolutely slasher film. Like that is obviously, that's a slasher movie. That's all acting. That's a slasher mm -hmm. movie. But then you try to segue an obvious film moment into this meta analysis of reality TV that did not work at all. Established with the reality, then focus on the slasher film, you know, the real thing turning into it. That was the problem is the whole thing didn't come off the way they wanted to. This is solely the director's fault. However, and this is not turd polishing, but I will point it out. I thought the kills in this were quite good. So as far as a slasher film goes, they did succeed there. They succeeded on capturing some really decent kills and some good fight scenes with the killer. The killer wasn't this like all powerful, I can't be stopped murderer. He's a very human killer. And sometimes people fight back and it's decent. So there were some decent scenes in here where the killer is taking people out and people don't just stand around going like, oh, I'm going to get killed. No, there's some, there's some action there. And I enjoyed that. I liked that aspect of it where at least they put the money in the into the kills when you be like the, the girl with her head going into the table saw and shit and then a number of the more graphic moments. I liked those. So that was solid. There's one reason to see it. So at least you can see some really bad performances get silenced really, really quick and in graphic ways. The, that was one saving grace of this movie that I can come up with. So, <laughs> so um, I'm actually, I'm looking at the director, uh, Jeff Fisher, right now. Uh -huh. And this is his first feature film that he directed. He comes from a line of TV shows, including he directed The Simple Life, starring Paris Hilton. Oh, uh, okay. So he's got reality TV background. So that's probably how he got the job going for reality TV. And what they honestly, what they should have done is they should have gotten a feature film director that can learn reality TV versus a reality TV director trying to learn feature film. Because when you come from, you come from reality background, you're not giving actors direction or at most you're like, stand here and talk about this. And right. then you just let Paris Hilton be Paris Hilton. That explains why Kaylee Cuoco's character felt. I didn't know that about Fisher that his background was in, in you know from that from that show with with Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie, but that explains why Kaylee Cuoco's character feels like a mishmash of Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie. Like elements of both those characters are kind of like slid by this, which is probably why it was so obnoxious. 
which is weird because I, I happen to like Kaylee Cuoco. I like her, especially in her show, The Stewardess. I liked that. That's a good like. That was a, that was a good show. Yeah. Exactly. I really, really enjoyed that. She's very, all of these people are very capable actors, you know? And the other stuff we've seen them in is fantastic. Like, you know, I, I enjoyed the Vampire Diaries. It's soapy vampire drama, but I liked it. It's good acting, good ensemble work. Kayla Cuoco is decent in the Big Bang Theory. She's good in the other stuff that she's done. I really enjoyed that. And then, of course, you've got a number of uh, one of the actresses there was on White Collar, played an awesome character on White Collar. Everybody's got talent here. Then, of course, you've got Jason London, who plays the killer in this. And he, that dude's legendary. He's got a huge filmography. Nobody is utilized to their best ability. But I don't blame the actors on this one. I blame it on the direction that they were given and how you have this director who's got this idea and this is what he's going to run with. And the actors kind of like, okay, it's a paycheck. Fuck it. Honestly, and because actors actors can pick up on weak directors or directors that don't give feedback, or especially when actors don't, I don't want to say like attention hungry, but it's like if an actor is putting in effort, they want feedback and they want to collaborate with a director. And whenever you have a director that's not giving anything back, they're not giving any direction, they're not giving any kind of tips, feedback, anything like that. A lot of times that happens is act, actors will check out. Right. Especially if they're like, they almost kind of, sometimes actors almost kind of push to see how far they can get away with in terms of performance wise. And some actors will because they want that feedback. And then when they're not getting it and they're checked out, it's kind of a, well, why try? And actors will pick up on this like on day one. Like you have to have the give and take. You and and if if it's starting to fade, when one actor checks out, then the actors that they're working across from, scenes, especially when it's a one-on-one scene, they're supposed to be give and take. They say, "Okay, he's checked out. I'm checking out," and it just becomes this problem that just kind of like flows through the entire cast. It's like, okay, well, the leads have checked out, so the your secondary characters, fuck it, we don't, we can just check out and just do this. Let's just get through the shoot and just get it as quickly as possible. Um, Tony Regime was up. Tecker and Dale was a good example of intelligent actors playing dumb characters. I'm going to add to that. That was an, an excellent example of intelligent, talented actors playing dumb characters who don't think they're smart. Okay. Who acknowledge the fact that they're not really bright. They, they're hillbillies. It's like, fuck it. We're hillbillies. You know, we, we, we don't try to be anything more than hillbillies. You know, that's pretty much it. His biggest dream was having his own fishing shack or his own little hunting cabin. Yeah. That was a dr- that's his dream. Cool, man. That's a hillbilly dream. You get after it, son. <laughs> that's what makes that so great because you have brilliant actors playing dumb characters who don't think they're smart. <laughs> you know? and, and the thing about that is, is they feel real solid characters. Yeah. That's, known, that's the selling some, point. I've known some Tuckery tales, man. I've known <laughs> them in real life. They live three doors down from me. <laughs> I, I live I live in a very rural area. Oh, <laughs> uh, where the boat is on blocks in the driveway. <laughs> and they walk out with the with the big scythe. It's like, oh my god. <laughs> Y'all going camping? <laughs> that is how you knock that out of the park. Hey, y'all, y'all going camping? <laughs> Sitting in the truck in his freaking coveralls, eating pickled eggs. Just all I love it. I can go on about that movie all day long. But the one thing I want, I want to ask about 
this particular film. The one thing that, that was enjoyable about this movie, about killer movie, the one and only thing that was enjoyable was the kills themselves. The kills were very good. The kills were well done. They were well executed and well shot. They're not too dark. You see exactly what you need to see. So at least we had that as far as You can a, see it, actually. You can see it. That's an important thing. Can I see what the fuck is going on? And that's what is important there. So at least the kills were decent. If you wanted to do a highlight reel of all the kills in Killer Movie, there you go. That's decent. Okay. I mean, they start off with a girl getting decapitated by barbed wire. She's you know, on her little, like, on her little four-wheeler trying to escape the bad guy. That's a great way to just to kick it off. Whoop, whop, and then her head goes rolling away. Good stuff. Okay. Just do a highlight reel of it. Check out the kills. That's all you really need to do. Uh, but I do want to ask the audience, because there were some particularly brutal kills in this film. I just wish the rest of the movie lived up to that yeah. is the problem. But I want to ask the audience, what, in your opinion, is the most brutal slasher movie kill? And I'm talking the most fucking hardcore that you that you have seen, you know, in a film. What do you think is the most brutal slasher movie kill? Let us know in the comments below or weekendhorror.gmail.com. Or, of course, here in the live chat, we'll see what some people come up with because there's lots of good ones out there. So many good ones. Yeah, there, there's some Yeah, there's some brutal ones. There's some hard, fucking hard. Yeah, we, Terrifier comes to mind. There's some I, I, was, I, was, I was fixing it. <laughs> I figured we'd get some people say from Terrifier 1 and Terrifier 2. And Terrifier 2. Yeah. Oh, Terrifier 2. <laughs> and you're just like, just let her die already. Just let her die. Just fucking just end it. Just end it. Uh Josh Lee says human centipede too. Nuff said. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll that's put up there, there. Some, some brutal shit. Holy fuck. Oh, <laughs> uh, I oh see, we haven't got a lot of answers there. Oh, so Plot hole says, what was the question? What do you think, in your opinion, was is the most brutal slasher movie kill? The most brutal slasher movie kill. Name like Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Burning. Like the, the Burning has some good ones too, man. The, the fucking shell. <laughs> that was fucking rough, man. Ugh. Anything from my spit. Ooh, I spit on your grave or Martyrs. Oh, yeah. Martyrs. You know? uh, uh, yeah, so slasher movie. Slasher movie kills where the slasher has killed somebody. Good stuff. All right, man. We got one more. Let's get let's get super weird. This is yeah. This is we're gonna end on a weird note tonight. <laughs> let's get super we, weird. We are, but I I noticed a couple things when I was watching this that I'll bring up, and I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Okay. Um. So we're finally we're talking about the Hunger, which was released April 29th, nineteen eighty three. All right, that is The Hunger, directed by Tony Scott, starring Catherine DeVille, David Bowie, and Susan, Sar and Susan Sarandon. And basically what you have is you have Miriam, who is a vampire, and who is basically looking for people to feed upon, and also um, bring into her love life. And I think I'll go ahead, I'll go ahead and say it. Shit gets weird. <laughs> Shit gets very, very odd. Very, very strange. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So this was this was an interesting one. So, uh, I, and I love I love that we have people in the live chat who are recommending read the book first, then watch the movie. And, and I will I will absolutely agree with that. 
So there's a little bit of weird history here. So the the film, you know, Catherine, you know, legendary actress Catherine Deneuve, um, and of course David Bowie, you know, as as he was really breaking into, you know, doing taking on acting roles, and then of course Susan Sarandon, less than ten years after Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I'll, I'll admit it was odd. Susan Sarandon, Susan Sarandon's always been a milf to me. It's it's interesting to go back and you know when I was like I was three years old in this movie, I was like fucking Susan Sarandon is like a legitimate sex symbol. It's like, damn. It's like, I was impressed. And then you know, it was like, ooh, Susan Sarandon. You just don't, you know, for me, it's kind of like I grew up and the first movie I ever saw her in was fucking Bull Durham. So, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised by this. But nonetheless, definitely read the book. So the book itself is by a, a guy named, um, uh, oh, dang it. I totally forgot his name. His name starts with a W, but I don't want to mess it up. So uh, Whitley Strieber, Whitley Strieber. So Whitley Strieber, uh, wrote a number of novels. He's still a writer, but he wrote a number of, uh, novels back in the day. Um, this being one of them, the hunger being one of them and the Wolfen being another. Now we talked about the Wolfen on the show. And I know you remember that was about New York city and the, uh, the, um, the native Americans who helped to build oh, yeah, the, uh, the man, yeah, the man skyline. And like, so that was a very, very cool movie that we all enjoyed about native Americans who could take on wolf form and they could defend a particular area. From the from the encroaching development, so it was a very good, a very good book, very good movie. This one is also based on one of his novels. Now, this is an interesting little timeline here. So, the novel came out in 1981. This movie came out in 1983, so it was adapted very quickly. But before this, uh, before Strieber's mo- or novel came out, 1975 saw Anne Rice deliver Interview with the Vampire. So, Interview with the Vampire comes out in 1975. And introduces the world to this subgenre of of this kind of like vampire subgenre of the I'm dangerous but in a sexy way kind of thing. And so now we get this, you know, Louis Lestat, and we get this the, the romanticized version of these things, but we don't really get the monstrous. And Strieber took it in a you know built on that and built this this story around this centuries-old vampire who never grows old and has eternal life, and every lover she takes. They wind up decomposing. They, they, they live forever, but they wind up like aging and decomposing into like this withered husk that she keeps in these little coffins up in her attic. She has this collection of lovers from the past and how she's moving on to this next to this next girl. And it's intriguing to see Tony Scott take this because Tony Scott, we, re- we, you know, we remember him. Top Gun, Days of Thunder, fucking Beverly Hills Cop 2. Man you know, on fire. Like. Man on fire. All the all the action shit that he did. And then we have he kicks his career off with this one. <laughs> which was weird. And I'm just gonna straight up say it. This movie, The Hunger, is like fucking Terrence Malick does Anne Rice. Because it is all visual. It is visual, it is a sensory experience. It's all visual and audio. But as far as like acting and substance go. It's not really that deep. It really isn't. And when I was watching this, a certain movie came to mind because if you notice the cinematography, very harsh lighting, very high contrast, a lot of backlight. The windows are really blown out and you get this real hard hair light. And I was like, I've seen this style before. And you know where I've seen it from? His brother in Blade Runner. Oh, Ridley. Okay. Because if he really... Oh, shit, you're right. Yeah. Fuck. 
So I honestly, oh, so I, dude, dude, the sequence when he's sitting at the table, when he's sitting at the fucking, oh, holy shit! You're, oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Holy fuck! Because you know, you know, Tony probably came by on set. And I don't know to the, to the capacity of how he much he was involved in Blade Runner, but he had to at least been talking, probably saw an early cut around this time, got the Dude, job for the this. All the sequences with Sean Young. He does it with Sean Young in almost every sequence. Holy shit. Oh, you're right. Like they think of that moment when she's sitting there, she's just like a battle. She's got this, she's smoking the cigarette and having that. Yeah. Like, yes. Oh, fuck. I didn't even put that together because I was thinking Tony Scott and not Ridley. Damn. Okay. Wow. All right. That just, okay. You just blew my fucking mind. <laughs> That's why I was saving that for when we talked about oh, it. Holy shit. I feel like, I feel like when Alex, when Alex watched Mother, and was completely perplexed by this movie. And when I was telling him, you know what it's about. You know it's about the Garden of Eden, right? It's about God and, you know, Javier Bardem is, is God. And Jennifer Lawrence is Mother Earth. And that the house itself is essentially, she's like Gaia. And then the house is like Earth itself. And then humanity comes and destroys everything. And then he just restarts the cycle again and again and again. And he was like, <gasps> yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just God in creation. It's all it is. You know, humans show up, they destroy everything. And then he just rebuilds it at the end. I was like, whole idiot i feel like alex my mind is fucking blown because now it's like the pieces are like those pieces go together what the shit i was like i was like five minutes in this movie i was like <laughs> yeah and i was like i was like it's like maybe let me let me and i went i just watched the scene from blade runner and i was like this is the same style <laughs> So it, that's wild. That's wild. I will say that the 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 strengths. Oh, plot hole! You hate everything. Mother was not a terrible film. It's it's Aronofsky. Come on, dude. Don't even. The thing about the hunger, and I found really really interesting, is it it no it did it didn't feel like this. David Bowie is in this. David Bowie's fucking legendary rock star thing. But the movie itself did not put all this weight of the film on Bowie. As a matter of fact, from, from an interview, Bowie said he was actually very uncomfortable shooting this movie, which is interesting. The guy who created Ziggy Stardust was a little uncomfortable in this role, considering the fact he's not in the movie that long. You know, he's not. He's in about, like, maybe a little less than half, and half the time that he's in the film, he's in, like, super, super old man makeup. So, because he's aging, you know, until eventually he gets put away into a little coffin. But it relies upon the visual, like the visual appeal, almost like the old Hollywood style, where it's the it's the images of these. Catherine Deneuve is a phenomenally beautiful woman and a legendary actress, you know, extreme, like multifaceted, very, very talented. And yet this movie lingers upon her like a Grecian statue. OK, and then the same with Susan Sarandon, where we have this more kind of modern uh, image of her. But everything is just we look at them like they're like they're pictures, like they're, like it's literally just art. And then we have even the flashbacks going back when he goes back to ancient Egypt to show her background, show how long she's been around since, you know, uh, since uh, Egyptian times. Then we look at these elements. Everything is shot with this kind of loving, surrealistic image, like just like taking a picture where the visual, the videography or the cinematography is given way more or way more weight than the performances themselves. Because everything is pretty when you take just the performances alone, it's all pretty kind of all I would almost say flat. Yeah. Where 
the real strength comes in how people are, how the characters are emoting to what they see. It's not in Susan Sarandon's performances, what she says in the dialogue, which you realize that this is a vampire and she's infecting her. It's in what she says with her face and what she says with her body language. Scott puts so much focus on that. And that's why this comes off in a very surrealistic, almost like dream state where we're going from one visual feast to the next. Where there's a lot to unpack in his cinematography choices, in his color choices, and in his lighting and in his sound. So I found it both really kind of enthralling, to use that word, the vampire's thrall. Uh. I found it kind of enthralling, but also a little alien. And that was it. Not to say, say like Ridley, you know, Ridley's <laughs> alien, but it was almost like a sense like I was watching something that I I was privy to moments that I shouldn't be privy to, which is kind of like, ooh. Should I be watching this? And that's a brilliant choice, which I can see why this movie got him selected to work with Don, with Simpson and Bruckheimer going forward because they loved what he did with this. We want that kind of mentality going into our films. And that's where Tony Scott really got his start was with Top Gun, Days of Thunder, and so on and so forth. So it, it's an interesting start to Tony Scott's career where the artist before he becomes really commercialized, because that's what Bruckheimer and Simpson were all, are all about. Jerry Simpson they're about and, money. and are, yeah, they're about money. You know, like Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, it's all about the money. The spectacle of what you're going to see, pay us money to yeah, have your socks blown off. They took an individual like Tony Scott who had the real capacity. We're talking, like I said, Terrence Malick style, fucking tree of life with vampires is what this was. And then had him take that talent and applied it in this commercial capacity. And I felt terrible after watching this because I saw what could, I got a sense of what could have been with Tony Scott. And then when the commercial machine quickly grabbed that talent, you're mine. And we're gonna use that talent for something that is not really artistic in that respect. And it reminded me very much because unfortunately we did lose Tony Scott. Tony Scott unfortunately took his, took his own life um, several years ago, which was a, was a, like, was a shame. He'd suffered from depression for a long time. And it was just such an incredible loss. Cause you look at juxtapose this one, check this out. <clears throat> Top gun, Beverly Hills cop. all you know, like all the movies that he did. Right now look at man on fire, man on fire and put it up against the hunger. Now, obviously two different, completely different films, but look at the cinematography, look where Scott went from that visual appeal, all those visual moments with Denzel and Dakota Fanning and Rhonda Mitchell and all the, you know, everybody in that one, look at how he portrayed those things. The, the colors, the harsh colors, the way he lifts up. That was almost him coming back to what he used to be, which is why Man on Fire is so fucking brilliant. And, and, and the thing is, is, and this is what's really interesting about it, is you're right when you get your style when let's say you have your dream job because you're like okay i want to be a director and i've made it he's made it as a hollywood director and has worked with some of the biggest names out there but and you go into directing because you want to be an artist you want to be able to create and then you get the job and you're not able to create and it's like you've made it to the top and you can't do what you actually want to do because at the top, it's all about dollar signs. Right. So sure, you do Top Gun and you do Days of Thunder and you do so forth and so forth. And they you, you have these big successful films. So Hollywood keeps pressuring you to do that, 
do that, continue doing this because you're going to keep making money, keep making money, keep making money. And what's one of the things I've really noticed about Tony Scott's career is Ridley Scott was able to get a name that separates him from his style. So people would go, oh, that's a Ridley Scott film. Right. Growing up, never really got that with Tony with Tony Scott. It was never really like in terms of influential directors and people talk about Ridley Scott, James Cameron, and so forth and so forth. No one really talked about Tony Scott, despite the level of films that he's directed. Yeah. It gets lost into this machine. And so I can understand how that, that can lead to depression and something that you can't get out because that, you can't do anything else. That's what that's why it kind of brought me full circle on it. If you look at the themes in the hunger and you look at Catherine uh, Deneuve's uh, performance and David Bowie's performance, these, these characters themselves are preoccupied, even though they're, they, they will live eternally. They are still preoccupied with, with death is like, even, you know, you're, you're, you're a vampire, you're going to live forever, but still preoccupied with that, with that, you need that substance. You need that purpose. You need something in your life to give that meaning. And the idea of just going on forever kind of eliminates that part of you on the timeline of everything. You can see where Tony's mind was in how he was portraying these things. And he did it in a beautiful way that was both alien and both inviting and just a completely different world hidden beneath their own. It was a brilliant artistic beginning to, to a career. And I think, unfortunately, I, th I have to agree with you. We, uh, with uh, with movies like if you look at Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop, Days of Thunder, he did The Last Boy Scout, uh, True Romance, Crimson Tide, Enemy of the State, Man on Fire, Deja Vu, and then and Unstoppable. And so a lot of work with Denzel. But you look at I think he was slowly trying to make his way back to what his vision was and his idea was. I think that it just was that this movie is an excellent way to see a name that we've associated with action and fat, you know, fast paced action and hard you explodes and shit like that. Thank you. Fucking Michael Bay and Bruckheimer and Don Simpson. Uh, an individual who we get to see him before the machine got their got its claws in him and said, this is real raw talent. We need to grab this and make use of this. And probably because Ridley was there and he was like, he's Ridley Scott's brother, you know, and Ridley could be like, dude, man, jump on this. Cause this could be the beginning of everything. This could really kick you off but then he gets lost in that machine. And so there is this kind of melancholy that, that was that, that kind of like influenced how I watched the entire film. And you could feel that throughout every single scene, Catherine Deneuve's performance, David Bowie's performance, realizing that no matter what it's going to end and will, was this ever really mine? Am I just an extension of something else? And the idea like David Bowie, am I just an extension of cat of, of uh, the, the, the vampire that turned me? The idea of identity, and I loved all of that in this, and I wish that we hadn't lost it. I, is, I, I wish that he had the freedom to create, because I'm looking at his movies right now, and like you start seeing his style come back in Man on Fire, and right. then also Domino had a very yes. like style experience, and this is probably where he really wanted to go, but when you have two things of, no, you just need to be the moneymaker. And the thing is, in that style, like the style of The Hunger and Domino, they're never going to be as big as like the Top Gun action films. 
they, they're see, just can, they're just not. Yeah, you can see you can see things kind of pulling him back, like the the machine kind of wanted to pull him back with the taking of Pelham one two three and the A team. Oh, the A team he didn't direct; he only produced. But then he did Unstoppable. You could see the the he started kind of moving in one direction where he could do what he wanted and really apply his own his own talent to it. But then all of a sudden, the machine starts dragging him back in. Yeah, because I don't, I don't yeah. know, and somebody can look this up, because I don't think Domino was successful in theaters. I don't think it was. It, it, it could have been. But especially if you have, if you start to venture out on your own, and you start feeling like you have the freedom to kind of really do what you want to do, and you put that out there, and then it's a commercial failure. Well, I mean, that was it was such an odd cast. It was Kieran Knightley and Mickey Rourke. Oh, oh, I mean, like, the, 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 who the, sees I'm, the? Like, yeah, it's, it's like it's Pride and Prejudice and Harley Davidson. It's like Pride and Prejudice and Harley Davidson. The Marvel was like, what the fuck oh, brought yeah. these two it's together? Not, no, no, it's not his best <laughs> work. But I'm just saying, from his mental standpoint, where you finally have the freedom to, okay, I want to do what I want to do, and then it becomes a commercial failure. And then what does that do to your psyche? Right. Because if you look um, at if you look at Unstoppable, Unstoppable goes back to traditional action style film. True. So Sarcasm brings up. So we're not even going to mention the bravery of the lesbian scene in 1983. Um, even in 1983, that wasn't that wasn't brave. I mean, films had been exploring that for some time. Uh, Susan Sarandon was already a, a like after Rocky Horror Picture Show and the Susan Sarandon. Was a sex was a sex idol or, or a, a uh, what 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 do we call what I, I don't want to she wasn't a sex idol or a, she was a sexual icon, uh, the independent woman the fierce independent woman who was not afraid of her sexuality she had already cultivated that and then of course with and uh, and then of course Catherine Deneuve long history of that so this wasn't seeing these two together wasn't you know that much, I don't think was that much of a, of like a brave moment I think it was like. Wow, we have two powerful, fiercely independent, strong women who there's no like hesitation. Notice that she was with another guy. She has a husband and she so quickly falls into this. And it wasn't even like I have you under my thrall and I'm, I'm you know, sleep with me like this. No, she goes with it because that's what she wants. That was the strength of that scene, the strong independent woman. If you notice, there's a lot of similarities between Susan, uh, Susan and Catherine's scene. And the scene between Kelly McGillis and, and Tom Cruise at Top Gun. There's a lot of similarity between those two, the way they, 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 you can see that there. So, um, but hey, Flat Derp, good to see you, Tina Jones. Good to see you as well. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Clive Wells is here. Good to see you, bud. Thanks so much for popping in. Um, but I love this one. Definitely, if you love vampires, definitely go back and watch it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a melancholy look back at what could have been with, uh, with the legendary Tony Scott. Um, I would have loved to have seen him explore this version of himself a hell of a lot more. Although I love the films he produced, he brought that talent to it. Entertaining movies. I love Top Gun, love Days of Thunder, love Beverly Hills Cop 2. I mean, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, I, I love the, you know, Beverly Hills Cop 2 and, and the fucking Last Boy Scout. Fucking love it. But I wish I could have seen more of who he was. You know, the man on fire where he gets to bring that just... Yeah, Think about that. just the depth of those moments, you know, those quiet moments. I love that. Hey, Ida Pimp, good to see you as well. Thanks so much for being here. I do appreciate it. So I actually I want to I want to ask the audience. I know we've talked a lot about Tony Scott, but we also have the great David Bowie. And he has done a lot of film work. And I actually want to ask the audience 
What is your favorite David Bowie role? He's been in quite a few movies. He's put in some great performances. What is your favorite David Bowie role? I have a feeling we're going to get some Zoolander in here. <laughs> you know, I, I but... figured Zoolander and obviously <laughs> uh, Labyrinth is going to be. A Labyrinth probably as well. Um, I actually will go get, say I loved him as fucking Nikola Tesla in The Prestige. I was fixing to say The Prestige. Yes. Yeah. Fucking Nolan. Oh. Nolan captured that dude, man. There's like this Great. elegance that he had that he just brought to the character that was just like. Do not forget your hat, Mr. Angius. Which hat? Yeah. They're, they're all your. They're all your hats. <laughs> Fuck yes, Nikola Tesla. Fuck. Oh, that's oh. such a good movie. Oh hell yes. Oh God. So oh look at that. Guess what? The man who fell to Earth. Hell yes. yes. Man who fell to Earth. Labyrinth as well. Yes. Dance magic. Yes. Absolutely. Plot hole. Thank you very much. The Goblin King. Jareth. The Goblin King. Absolutely. I always remember that Jareth because I was because you know, I was like oh cool that name. Um. Well, it won't be performance <laughs> to <Sydney laughs> Sue. Um, but he had he had some fantastic ones. I was fucking and I just loved him and because when he came comes up on screen, it's not like holy shit, that's David Bowie. It wasn't at first for me. I was kind of like, oh, it's David Bowie. He's like, no, it's it's Nikola Tesla. Oh, he was played by David Bowie. That's amazing. It's that's a sign of good acting because I yes. the same the same way I watched it, I didn't think David Bowie at all until it was like halfway through. And I was yeah. like, there is David Bowie. And I love that entrance when he's when he's when he's coming in and he's got the fucking coils going on, it's electricity <laughs> and he's like it's it's like it's no worries, it's just electrons, man. It's just like, yeah, it's like I'm fucking, I'm like just oh Nikola Tesla, <laughs> undiscovered God. It's just like I fucking loved it. Oh, it's so brilliant. Oh man, well. Definitely let us know what you think is the best. What was David Bowie David Bowie's best role? Let us know in the comments below, or of course, at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Because remember, Alex does need reading material when he's dealing with the kids. All right. Well, it is about that time. You know what time it is. It's trivia time. <laughs> Thank you, Alex, for giving us that. Absolutely. It is trivia time. So, as usual here on the Weekend Horror if you were in the live chat, you get the opportunity to win a mystery item from the Weekend Horror Store. What could it possibly be? If you are the first one in the live chat with the correct answer to tonight's trivia question, you will get a special item from the store. We will print it out and ship it directly to you. Here is your opportunity to get those Google fingers ready. The trivia question tonight is, what was the name of Guillermo del Toro's first American horror film? One more time. What was the name of Guillermo del Toro's first American horror film? First correct answer in the live chat gets a mystery item from the Weekend Horror Store. Check that out. The link is down below at Teespring. Who's got it? Who's got it? Who's got it? Uh, let's see. We got some answers coming in. And no, it is not Kronos. It is not Kronos, Angel Rivera. Sorry about that. Uh, poultry guys. Well, give me a fucking break, man. Come on, dude. <laughs> <laughs> who's got the right answer i'll say uh let's say it one more time what was the name of guillermo del toro's first american horror film <laughs> maybe a little bit of a trick question because now people are like what 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 what's going on <laughs> come on who's got it? what oh stop it stop it plot <laughs> hole come on give me a break bammy goes crazy Eight bonk wait with bonkers with um, what the fuck? <laughs> oh, I know somebody's got this is not bad. Come on, this is a, this is, couldn't have been a tough a, a tough one, right? This, this is, couldn't yeah. have been hard. 
Say Zeus is Frankenstein. No, not Frankenstein. Nope. This can't be this difficult. <laughs> horror film horror one. said <laughs> Frankenstein. No. Night of Living Dead. Nope. That was Romero. Blade two. Nope. Joshua Lee, but you are close. Otto says Eugene goes to town. What country is that? Dead folk? What the uh, come on. Oh, wow. This cannot be that hard. Why was it the most unassuming ones are the toughest ones? It really, I try it really to, is. I try to come up with a really in-depth one that's like, oh, really complex. And they come up with it like in three seconds. We see the, the, the correct one up. Crimson Peak. No, not correct. No, not Blade One. That wasn't him. That was actually directed by Steve Norrington, who did a magnificent job. Blade is a fucking great movie. Blade is a fantastic movie. There we go. We got it. We got yes, Angel yes, Rivera. We got it. Yes, Sydney Sue, and the answer is mimic. Oh, oh, sorry, no, sorry, my bad. It was Cindy Sue. Yes, oh, that's Cindy Sue. That's who I got first. Up. Cindy Sue, congratulations, Cindy Sue. You are correct. It was mimic. Was mimic was Guillermo del Toro's first fully American production, and it was produced by Miramax, starring uh, Mira Servino, and the first time that del Toro worked with Norman Reedus. So, but yes, that was mimic. Plothole says, how the fuck is Mimic close to Blade 2? Not in terms of years, in terms of his filmography. What the shit, man? They both have people in them. They both have people in them. (laughs) (laughs) Because in his filmography... Oh, where is it at? I'm sorry. I gotta look at this. Uh, Career. Or his movie. Oh shit, I can't find his fucking movies. Oh, here we go. Because Mimic was 1997 and Blade 2 was 2002. So it's literally five years. It's five years. And in between that, he did the uh, the Mexican horror, The Devil's Backbone. So it was Kronos was first, was his, was a Mexican, it was a Mexican production, then Mimic, which was his first American production, and then Devil's Backbone, which was a Mexican-American production, then Blade 2, which was back to America. So Although they shot in Prague, which was interesting. But yeah. uh, but yes. But uh, Mimic was his first full-on American... Hap- I hate you sometimes, John. I, I do, I swear. Why does he... <laughs> you're lucky you're a great gaffer, man. I swear. I really do. If it wasn't for your lighting <laughs> ability. It wasn't for your lighting capacity. <laughs> <laughs> eat your, eat your whole pretty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And that will close another episode of the Weekend Horror Podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us. We, we truly hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, smash those like and subscribe buttons and be sure to hit that bell so you never miss a future episode. Join us next week when we look back at the cult classic Rugger Howler action horror split second, the Freaks remake, the 80s Jack the Ripper horror, Jack's back and the black comedy slasher Satan's Little Helper. And be sure to check out Josh Olson's store at badsamurai.store. He does all the awesome artwork you see splattered all over our merch, which you can find over at Teespring. For and for more from Weekend Horror, check out <laughs> that's a tongue twister. For more from Weekend Horror, check out all the bloody links in the description. Follow us on all the socials for the Daily Splatter, your daily horror recommendation. Join our Discord for watch parties, big announcements, and all kinds of horror shenanigans. 
and support our show through our PayPal link or through our Patreon. Join the higher tiers for early content access and behind the scenes fun with the crew, or even just support the show for as little as $1 a month. $1. What are you waiting for? Join us. As always, thank you for being the greatest audience a horror film podcast could have. I'm Eugene. And I'm JL. And we'll see you next week. And as always, stay scared.